I've studied the form of comics intimately. What you need is a hobby. Words and pictures, it could be more of an art form. What the fuck are you talking about? I don't know, it's pretty goddamn weird. A guy dresses up like a devil and he's a blind lawyer, you know? We have to do Aquaman. No one with a lick of sense would watch that show. The word fan actually is an abbreviated form of fanatic. And there are some people who fit that category. I believe comics are a last link to an ancient way of passing on history. You can put on a uniform for football year-round, nobody cares. Basketball year-round, nobody cares. Put on a Star Trek uniform, people get a case of the giggles. Yeah, hi, somebody told me to make comic books here. That's from Superman? Smallville. You have been trying that Jedi mind shit on me since the eighth grade. It doesn't work. Oh, it works. You guys must read too many comic books or something. People do not masturbate in the DC universe. That was the biggest load of crap I've ever heard. back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and periodically, God knows, not every episode, but periodically, what I like to do is play music. And the reason for that is because music was a very central aspect. I don't want to say, I don't want to be like too flowery about it and say it was a central aspect of my identity as a teenager and youthful rebellion, all that kind of fucking bullshit. But there's something about music that it, that's always spoken to me on, on just a very deep, almost primitive type of level here to where I relate to certain songs or certain albums or certain bands more than just, I like this song, you know? I mean, to me, there's always been a little bit of an art to creating an album. And this is something that I've always been sensitive to. I like music. I like specific bands, in fact. And what I like doing and what I've started doing on Trinus Magnus Punch's reality is not as like an ongoing regular fixture of my show or anything like that, but just periodically taking a look back at albums that have meant something to me over the years. And so what I've been doing is kind of going through a little bit of an irregular type of mini-series related to the band R.E.M. And what I've discovered is it's very difficult when you start thinking about the totality of R.E.M.'s history. I think it's a little bit difficult to factually call oneself an R.E.M. fan, but I'll come back to that momentarily. When I do these types of shows, what I like doing is having a second voice and a second perspective to bounce ideas off of and talk to 
and just kind of liven up the conversation in ways that I just would not be capable of doing by myself. And so it is in relation to that, that I welcome back to the show and in particular back to this sort of musical Magnus or music men or whatever it is I end up deciding to call this little irregular series. I welcome back to the show and to this series the co-host, co-founder, and lead blogger of the podcast and blog, Pop Culture Affidavit, Mr. Tom Panarese. Hello and welcome back to the show, sir. Oh, it's great to have, great to be back and um, I've been looking forward to this as much as looking forward to the last time we sat down and talked an REM album. Um, I... It's funny how you were saying how um, you are not one of the people who thinks kind of looks at a piece of music or, or an album or something like and it's, it's like important to my identity. And I'm not necessarily the same way either. I know plenty of people who are, mm-hmm. but there's always that aspect of, especially rock and pop and popular music, just as an over umbrella term, which include R and B, rap, country, whatever, that does kind of form the identity of uh, a time period though or, or a decade or, or, or you do come to associate certain things with youth this is definitely one of them and uh, and and it's I think it's because it's just such a social or it's just that one thing that we a lot of us do have in common um, that goes beyond the niche of comic collecting for instance yes where you get a much broader group of people who can reminisce about um, about or, or analyze music in a way that you don't always get with with comics, um, which has its advantages and has its disadvantages, but, <laughs> because there are some people whose whose nostalgia for certain bands and certain albums, and you're just like, really, or they're completely inaccurate or whatever. But um, but no, this in short, um, I think you're you're onto something with with it and this is a this is a great album to talk about too it is and before we actually even get too far into that you know i've often thought that there's a piece of literature it 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 can be sort of like a cultural talisman it means something to the civilization that produced it Mm -hmm. even if it's at best like a footnote or something like that it still means something to the civilization not necessarily to the individual and so it's easy for me to read, you know, the, for example, the comics of my youth and think to, and I, my mind can sort of drift back to where I was and what I was doing yeah. in general, you know, during like the heyday of my collecting or even when I read that specific issue. Mm-hmm. But that's more about, I, if you wanted to put it in nostalgic terms, I guess that would be something more akin to nostalgia for a sort of general season of life. It's rarely in the moment. Yeah. Whereas music is a lot more specific in as much as, you know, I, we were talking about this just a, you know, just a, a second ago before we went live. Mm-hmm. You know, we were talking about um, Sugar Ray and that song Every Morning. Yeah. And it's not a great song. It's not that song that like defines a generation or something like that. No. But there is this moment from my high school prom that I'm always going to think of whenever I hear that song every morning. It doesn't matter how old I am. I'm always going to think of just sitting in this. Um, it, it's basically sitting by the edge of the pool, mm-hmm. drinking margaritas and hanging out with my girlfriend and just basically doing the kind of 
fun stuff that a teenager needs to be doing, and that's what that song means to me, irrespective of whatever the song is about, which in the grand scheme of things is probably nothing earth-shattering. What that song means to me in terms of defining not just my senior year in high school, but specifically that moment on that day with respect to my to, to my high school prom and all of that, music has a way of being, on the one hand, unifying, but at the same time so specific in terms of the individual. And it's so yes. like variable. I mean, there are people who, the minute I say every morning, those who even know what the hell that song even is. It's in thinking, my head right now. <laughs> yeah. And they're thinking, oh, my God, that song, it, like, you know, you're nostalgic for that. Well, I, I mean, it does it, it does mean something to me, you know. I, I and, and I I might be confusing the video with another video because I think Mickey G directed more than one Sugar Ray video. But I can see Mark McGrath on my television. <laughs> yeah. And well, that kind of blown out color that mcg did in a lot of those videos in the late 90s yeah that kind of 90s chic kind of poppy type of yeah well today thankfully uh tom and i we're not scraping the bottom of the barrel barrel to such a degree that we're going to be talking about sugar ray yeah we wouldn't even be talking about the album that had nicole Eggert naked on the cover i mean that's (laughs) (laughs) yes uh today it's actually going to be rem and Specifically, this is the album Automatic for the People. Now, as REM albums go, Automatic for the People, it's, I got to tell you, you know, whenever we were doing our show about Out of Time, I had a blast doing that mm-hmm. show. I love that album. I really like the way that episode turned out, which at the time you and I record this, it hasn't come out yet, but it's, you know, it'll it, be it, there. Yeah. It, by the time this episode comes out, I think, well, hopefully, you know, people have had a chance to absorb that. I think Automatic for the People could be my favorite, or at least it's one that I play the most often. It's one of the ones mm-hmm. that I play the most often. And honestly, my era of REM, and this is one of the reasons why I think it's kind of hard to call oneself an REM fan. Yeah. My era of REM begins with Out of Time and then goes right on through to New Adventures and Hi-Fi. Now, I like some of the albums before then. And I like some of the albums after, but for my money, 1991 to 1997 is my era of REM. And I just don't know if liking that particular era, I mean, does that give me the right to say, hey, I'm an REM fan? Or do you have to be a little bit more conversant and open to all of it? Um, I would say that it does in the same way. That and I'm going to bring it back to comics for a minute. Please. In the same way that if I say that I absolutely love the Steve Englehart Marshall Rogers run on Batman, mm-hmm. but I don't like the Grant Morrison run on Batman, I'm still consider myself a Batman fan. You know, like 
you know, like you can pick and choose. Like there are eras of comics where you can pick and choose like what you like the best, mm. and you can dabble in the others. And we can still call yourself a fan of the character. Now you'll always come across those Encyclopedia Britannica type of fans oh, who feel the need to um, fan explain to you, uh, you know, why you're wrong, or whatever. And you know, granted, maybe it's just us getting older, and we're like, I don't have time for that shit. So if I if I'm a fan of this album and I'm a fan of this band in this period. Then I'm a fan, you know. Um, REM's one of those weird. They're not a weird band, but there are one of those weird cases where their sound changes so much over the course of the uh, thirty, nearly thirty years or so that they produce music. That you can that you there really is a, a, a clear distinction. Um, uh, you and I have roughly the same time period of of REM music that we listen to on a regular basis. Um, I have Green. I haven't listened to that album all the way through in a number, but there's like certain songs I pick off of that. But yeah, out of time, uh, automatic monster. I, it, I kind of stop at monster mm-hmm. and I cannot for the life of me remember why new adventures in hi-fi seems to be this missing blip because I rem- clearly remember up. And my roommate Dennis had New Adventures on Hi-Fi, and he really, really liked it. But I just – I don't know why it fell off my radar because it's not like I didn't like the band in 90 – was it 97 or so? 96, 97 when it came out? I just – for some reason – maybe it it might have just been life at the time. It was just not – it was just not in my – in, well, in my orbit, but but yeah, so but yeah, but, but these two albums though, Out of Time and Automatic for the People are, are my two favorite. I think I play Automatic more. It's almost like they compete <laughs> for my attention when I'm in an REM mood, you know? So I think I, I think you're right though. I pull more from this album if I am listening to specific songs on a regular basis. Agreed. And you know, the nineties as a decade musically, I don't know if they get, I don't know if this decade necessarily gets the props for it that it should get. But the nineties, this is when I re I really remember the time of the hit single really being mm-hmm. uh, a major focus for a lot of bands and a lot of record labels and things like that. I mean, God knows it's not, it, it, it was not as bad then as it is now, but even then, you know, it was so bad and what I think happens is people tend to forget that there were not just albums in the 90s, but there were albums, like good ones in the yeah. 90s that were that were powerful artistic statements that for some reason it, it, it's just like as a decade, the 90s doesn't really get credit for that. But R.E.M. were very, I think, accomplished practitioners of – crafting an album an an album that you can listen to and it's got weight to it and it stands the test of time and one of the things that came back to me loud and clear is i was i I basically had this album on a loop leading up to our recording because i've been Mm -hmm. so looking forward to this i'm not saying that i don't like out of time i love out of time Mm -hmm. but in terms of what rem at their best as i define it what they sound like at their best, this is very close to the epitome of that. I can't imagine it getting a whole lot better. And it, this is, to, in my mind, and this is the point, Automatic for the People is a major standout 
and not just REM's entire my era of REM and their entire run from 1991 to 1997, but mm-hmm. the 90s at large. Yeah. Now, you and I joked in our Out of Time show that Out of Time there's a there's a degree to which it doesn't really get going until side two of the album and mm-hmm. one and, and again on the on the relist and one of the things that became very apparent to me is that automatic for the people is a lot more focused it hits the ground running and I think it's a better album for it as a result I you know what do you think yeah I, I think so too it 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 brings it. First of all, it lets you know they let you know what how the what the mood of the album is and the feel of the album is right away. Uh this is not a um Monster would be more of a hard rock album than than this and this is not old REM which is um I don't want to call it new wave but it is that sort of early the 80s college radio, you know, um, sound. This is it's it's very somber in places. It's slower in places, um, but it's also not like it's heavy emotionally, but it's not heavy in its sound. And I think one of the things about both out of time and especially automatic for the people, this stands out because it was de- it really is different from so much of what was coming out. Um, it's an it's a album that I think only REM could have made. Yes, and I also think, and this is something that that, um, and I'd, I'd have to look at the timeline here, but it is around this time where REM signs this enormous contract with Warner Brothers. I think it was Warner um, with their record label, like multi million dollars, um, multi album contract or whatever, and um, which is usually the kiss of death for a lot of artists, and yeah. and 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 they didn't really fare that well either as you go through the decade. As you get later into the '90s, they're you know they're you know Bill Berry leaves and et cetera. But um, had REM not essentially been at the height of its power in the early 1990s, after Out of Time, I don't think that they would have gotten Automatic for the People made because if you have a band that's on the rise that turns around and makes this album, I don't think it gets picked up or gets promoted by a, by a record label because the record label is looking for Pearl Jam. They're looking for Nirvana, both of which are great bands, mm-hmm. but they're looking for Stone Temple Pilots or they're looking for that, that to replicate that sound. Mm-hmm. R.E.M. can do its own thing because they've got a proven track record by this point. And, and they're, t- and I, but, but what I love about it is that they take full advantage of that. And it, it ends up being, this is a note that I had written down. This is an essential album for the nineties. If you're going to put a pile of CDs, and they have to be CDs because this is the 90s, in front of somebody and say, you want the 1990s, this is the 1990s, this CD is in there. And you know what? I would, If we're going to put things in those types of terms, I would say that, uh, that Automatic for the People is essential in a way that out of time just isn't. Mm-hmm. No, and that's not to take anything away from out of time, but it doesn't. To me, if essential means this is the band at their best, and I and, and for as good as out of time is, I don't know as I go so far as to say this is the definitive REM record because I just I just don't think that it is. No, you know it's great, but is it great? 
it's you know, it's like the it's the lead up essentially it's the last step before the big one um you know yeah and it's the director making that movie that gets them noticed that may and then they make their masterpiece with the next one you know like I'm trying to, I'm blanking on an example, but you know what I'm talking about. It's our out of times, like the one, it is the one before the big one, the one before the masterpiece. And you see the bits and pieces of that great, great album in the album before it. Uh, but now here it's more fine tuned. It's more honed. Agreed. And out of time was a fairly slow album. So I guess to try something new, the members of R.E.M. wanted to do – this was their intention, you understand. Mm-hmm. What they wanted to do is a louder, more guitar-driven rock album. And suffice it to say, that is not what ended up happening. For whatever reason, the creative muse led them to write songs that, if anything, are even slower yeah. than at a time. And so the end result of that is that there's really – only three like real rockers on mm-hmm. this album, and those are Ignoreland, The mm-hmm. Sidewinder Sleeps Tonight, and Man on the Moon. And even that's yeah. kind of relative, but the rest of the songs tend to be slower, more ballady mm-hmm. types of songs. And now you were talking a minute ago about R.E.M. flexing their muscle. Several songs on Automatic for the People have string arrangements, which... I don't know if that was necessarily the I don't know if that was as trendy to have in in you know on your album at that exact moment as it was maybe 10 years earlier and then 10 years later. Yeah, I'm trying to think um rock album cuz R&B pop this was something that you'd still have. Um, but I think you're right. I, I, I'm trying to think of other bands from this period where they would have have a string arrangement. And the only song contemporary to this by a rock act, and even then this is more of a pop album, is uh, there's a couple of songs on the Billy Joel album River of Dreams that uses that use strings. Most notably Lullaby uses a string quartet. But like I said, that's more of a pop album anyway. So but rock alternative, this is not something that you strings were not something that you usually use. And even if you did, it might have been something synthesized. Right. And that actually led into one of my notes. I probably should have checked this for myself, but fuck it. It's good mm-hmm. conversation. Um yeah. did November Rain have strings in it or is it did. It did. Yes. Okay. Yes. It, it has a. It has a full. In fact, I think November Rain employed Michael Kamen, and really? the oh. yeah the video did. Oh, okay. Kamen's <laughs> in the video. I don't have the liner notes to use your illusion one. I, 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 I checked the booklets, a lot of the booklets and, and jewel cases of my CDs years ago. Um, but uh. But I, I'm sure you could look it up, and but I know he's in the video. But I know it it, it fulls. It's a it, but it's almost like a full orchestra effect as opposed to uh, you know something that's a little more subdued. Right. And speaking of the string arrangements, I got, I'm not sure if this is a widely known fact, but the string arrangements were actually done courtesy of John Paul Jones, former bassist from Led Zeppelin. So 
if you like trivia, there there you go. But that is flexing your muscle, though. You know, that's that's um, you know the the uh, collective soul probably would have not gotten John Paul Jones to do there. Probably not string arrangements. <laughs> you know, I mean, um, so that is flexing. That is flexing your muscle. You know, I mean. Uh, like what's what's the is there is what's the next step up from that like grabbing one of the surviving beetles or something you know so yeah that's that's impressive indeed and before we uh, get going into the songs just one final note is for those of you who have never heard this album before i do recommend listening to it before you listen to me and tom comment on it but Mm -hmm. one of the things that you kind of need to be sensitive to is the fact that guys this album is fucking dark. I mean, yes. a lot of themes relate to aging, mm-hmm. death, or mm-hmm. other just really uplifting subject matter. And so, if what you're what you're looking for is you know shiny happy people, well, that's not really this this record. I would say really at all. So no, no. In fact, um, that that was I was I had a notice that they were it was about more. There was something on, on when I was reading about how it's about mortality and the passage of time. Um, and one of them had made a comment about how they were all starting to approach 30 at this point. Yes. And if you do the math, I believe this is roughly 10 years into their career. Right. So give or take. So they're at a time where they might be doing a lot of introspection and, and thinking. And maybe that's what that's what drove their muse in a way. Yeah. And I've actually got some some specific notes about that when we get further along, because there's one song in particular that I think really ties in with that. And, you know, Mm -hmm. we can get there. But, you know, that that was definitely something that I wanted that I wanted to uh, to bring into it. Now, uh, Tom, what is the first song on this album? That would be Drive. All right, uh, you can. I, I've got a little bit of a story with Drive, so I'll I'll, I'll let you go first. Um, there were two things I wrote down. Um, I, it's a, one's a, it's a little story. It was um, my roommate in college had this album, uh, and and we would put it on every once in a while. But he hated the song. Um, I don't know why, but he would always say whenever we would hear it, he's like, "This is not an REM song." I never asked him why. Um, uh, but this was the first. This was the first single off the album. So anybody who heard anything off of this album in 1993, uh, this was the first song you heard because this was the one that came out on the radio prior to the album's release. It was the lead single. Um, and the other, it, it's a, it is a really somber opening to an album, um, and it's a somber opening to a very somber album. For years, I would hear this album, this song, and I would think back to this. It was, it, he didn't record it, but there was this, uh, this song called Hey Kids Rock and Roll, or what's called Rock On, 
and, and, and there was this shitty, shitty cover by Michael Damien, who was like on General Hospital or something in the late 80s. <laughs> and it's that song that goes, hey, kids, rock and roll, rock on. And I'm and I was I was on the uh, Wikipedia page for this. And they said that uh, part of the part of the melody of the song I'm trying to pull up the page was uh, a direct tribute to another band that they knew who wrote a song very similar to this mm-hmm. and that song was actually influenced by the song Rock On so I was not far off in hearing that song in the back of my mind I thought it was just my weird and weird sort of um, weird sort of uh, knack for making weird associations in, in, in music and stuff but uh, it's it's a song that like I said it's it's it, it leads off the album and it, it what I like about it is that it lets you know what this album is gonna be uh, so, but you go ahead I'm curious to hear what your story is so. um, well basically the sometimes in life what happens is and and as you're an only child, is that isn't that right? No, I have a younger sister. Oh, you did? Okay, I don't know where she, they came my, from. No, no, my sister's three. I have an only child, <laughs> but uh, my young my wife is an only child. My sister is three years younger than I am. Oh, then maybe that's what. Well, the the thing about it is, you know, as being as I've got you know brothers and mm-hmm. I've got cousins and all of this sort of fun stuff, you know, maybe, what happens is. You are sometimes exposed to music that, let's face it, is uh, technically it's a little bit uh, beyond you in terms of, you know, what by by all rights, like what you should be listening to right now, you're actually mm-hmm. listening to stuff that's a little bit, uh, you know, ahead of your time. No, because cous- of- cousins is the operative word for me there. Ah, all right. Well, I have all the cousins. <laughs> And so my brother, my eldest brother, mm-hmm. he had this this album, and there were really two songs. We'll get to the other one, you know, later on. But there were really two songs on this album that it, there was something about them that it just captured. It, it captured his attention, you know, like with with uh, Pearl Jam's album Ten. Yeah, I think the song that a lot of teenagers kind of connected to especially in terms of like the big singles and stuff the song that a lot of the teenagers really connected to on like a very personal and almost visceral level you know people can say whatever they want about even flow or jeremy or any of those other ones alive was that seemed to be the common denominator among a lot of my like for my brother for his friends that's the one that they all kept coming back to there's something about that about that riff, I guess, yeah, that just grabbed him by the balls. And the same type of principle seems to have been in play, at least for Drive, that there's something about this song. Maybe it's just something about this. It's not even really all that oblique when you really think about it. It's something about, I guess, like the teenage empowerment angle. I mean, you really wouldn't know it based on the tempo, which kind of precedes a little bit of a snail's pace. So I guess leave it to REM to write a slow song about teenage empowerment, but yeah, it's and there's an irony there too. So yeah, and so what I'm always going to think of whenever I hear this song is 
you know, irrespective of whatever, I guess, the lyrical intent of uh, of the song might be, which I think it it, it kind of wears its purpose on its sleeve, at least somewhat, which is unusual for an R.E.M. song. But hey, what can you do is what I'm always going to think about is writing to school with my brother in the sixth grade, which was right around the time this album came out, you know, the fall of 1992, which is when I was in the sixth grade. And I was listening to this stuff that, as I say, it's a little bit beyond where my musical taste should have been at that time. You know, if we go strictly by, you know, I guess the formula that that a lot of people have, you know, where apparently you're just supposed to live in a vacuum and not absorb the influences and just whatever whatever is around you. Stick with what's targeted your demographic, please. (laughs) Yeah. And so instead of. Uh, what would have? What would I have been listening to? I, I guess "Color Me Bad" or something. But uh, that's maybe Guns N' Roses. Yeah, maybe. So instead of that stuff, it was something that was a little bit more off the beaten path. Uh, in in as much as I was listening to Drive. So, and sometimes you know, you hear a song, and it was it was it was this way with Led Zeppelin. Like the first time I heard Cashmere. I didn't really know anything about Led Zeppelin. I didn't know who they are or, or, or anything, but I heard that song and I, it, it was, is holy shit. You know, I mean, I didn't, I guess I never thought that you, that I'd never heard anybody like really play that way before. And it was, it, it it's kind of, I, I have to assume that you've probably had an experience like this where you have this kind of revelatory moment, like the first time you hear a particular song when you're a kid and it kind of changes your, ideas i i guess of what a song can be what music can be what a band can be and that's kind of what drive was for me yeah and the funny thing is of all bands of all albums to do it it was green day because i've um and i this is an episode i did like two years ago but um, it's a good episode too. i did dookie and i did the album dookie i've did not do Dookie on a podcast. Um, but, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> stupid. Um, but listening when I had when I had been on a steady diet of metal and alternative, yes, uh, with some forays into rock and pop and stuff, and some classic rock, especially mm-hmm. um, where where your average song length was your four to five minute, you know, and and you take a group like Alice in Chains, which I enjoy from time to time, but I, I have Dirt on CD, but Dirt is a very plotting uh, plotting is the best way I can describe most of that album it just yeah. is dun, dun. Green Day comes out and it's not Longview but it was Basket Case where it really hit that this that this could be something and this is like this is what I have been hoping for and waiting for and I always credit this album because then uh, because there was really nothing else mainstream punk that was out there at the time mm-hmm. it no. was a big breakthrough it caused me to go backward and I got the two groups that I listened to right after that were the clash and the Ramones. And so it was just this sort of gateway into a type of music punk and then into new wave that, um, that I had known were there, but did not, never connected with me on the level that did. Um, you didn't really have like the access point to it. No, no. I discovered Zeppelin by the way, because of the Robert Plant, Jimmy page, um, MTV, concert they did and was like 95 yeah around there. The no, it was the no quarter was the was the album that came from it and 
So uh, my first album was Led Zeppelin two. Well, we always just had not many, but we had a couple of Zeppelin albums in uh, in the house, and so there was to scratch that itch. I had quite a few options, and so it it it, it was a good fit. Yeah, this album. Um, the thing about the thing of the early nineties versus the late nineties. When, when it comes to rock and alternative is that it, the rock and alternative in the early 90s, maybe it was just the age I was because I was in high school from the fall of 91 until the spring of 95. And then I was in college from the spring of 90, from the fall of 95 to the spring of 99. Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains, Soundgarden, uh, R.E.M., um, and a number of other groups seemed like they were a little bit older. Yes. Especially when I was a freshman, sophomore in high school. When I get into college and the mainstream rock acts start being a little more pop oriented and then the the teen pop takes over, MTV starts going younger. And it was just this it everything had flipped. Like I became too old for MTV really quickly. In a way that I don't know if people older than me did. Like I always felt that MTV was still trying to target people about 17, 18, 19 years old back in the year, very early 90s mm-hmm. in, a, in a big way. And they still had stuff that targeted people my age. But when I hit 98, 99, and everything is geared toward 13-year-old girls. Yes. And I'm only 21 so that was what the, that's how that's what I remember from the late nineties is feeling too old for the music that was really popular and still listening to a lot of stuff that was 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 not um, you know was from the early part of the decade where, where I was veering into different genres that didn't chart. But this album felt um, this album still feels. I was trying to put my myself into the mentality of what I was like. At the, I think this album came out when I was about fifteen. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't, I didn't listen to it as, on as much of a regular basis as I would later on. And but when I did listen to it, or I did listen to REM, aside from the poppier stuff like Shiny Happy People, it did feel older, and I it almost felt like I was listening to music that was slightly smarter. Yes, in a way, as opposed to as opposed to Green Day, or as opposed to uh, you know Stone Temple Pilots or something, which I just enjoyed. Uh, I enjoyed Core because it was just heavy and things or Metallica, for instance, right. You know, Metallica was, was what a lot of my friends listen to. And you listen to the black album and it's dark and it's because it's it's heavy metal. I mean, it's exactly what it's advertised to be. Yeah, no, they don't bury the lead on that. No, no. But, but REM, there was a sophistication there that as a 15 year old really, uh, really worked and and connected with me here and there on, on, on some level. Well, and I always thought that the the commercial decline of REM, it's as much as anything, you could tie that in in some ways to the culture that when you think about the average video that MTV was liable to play between 1994, just to pick a year, mm-hmm. and 1990, sorry, 1992 going to about 1994. Yeah. It was a specific type of music. Mm-hmm. And there are specific attitudes and whatnot that are associated with that song or with those bands or whatever. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> and <clears throat> there came a point, and I usually want to put the thumbtack in the map on this to 
somewhere around 1997 where alternative music and alternative rock and what, you know, just whatever you want to call it, grunge, whatever. It went from being, I guess, the defining force in rock music to overnight. It's like it just fucking died. Mm-hmm. And there came a point. I mean, people can laugh about this if they want, but this is this really is how things happened. There came a point when, you know, you could pick and choose, you know, videos that you would see on MTV or the songs that you wanted to listen to on the radio. You know, I think I'm in a little bit more of a sound garden type of mood right now. Yeah. Or maybe maybe I'm, it's going to be more like STP or, or or fucking just whatever whatever candle box even God help you, but there came a point when pretty much the best that you could hope for, and even this is kind of reaching pretty far low, but the best you could pretty much hope for was something like Creed, <sighs> where yeah, and it's that attitude and you know. One of the things I'll say about Creed, because I don't want to go too far off topic, but one mm-hmm. of the things I'll say about Creed is that if you just listen to their bass guitar or their lead guitar or their drums or something like that, this is some amazingly well-crafted music. You know, these are real compositions, in my opinion. And, you know, their front man, you know, the situation there, it is what it is. Mm-hmm. But... That band is three quarters good, one quarter a little obnoxious, you know, or at least at that time he was a little obnoxious. Uh And, you know, for as obnoxious as Creed as a, I guess as a total unit might be, guys, that was nevertheless, you know, more or less the best you could hope for, you know, circa 1998, 1999 and through there, where that's the shit that MTV was playing if you were lucky. Yeah, because I think I think I'd have to check the year. But somewhere in the mid to late 90s, um, three very – between – between by the late 90s, three very important shows on MTV had all gotten canceled. Uh, Yo! MTV Raps. Yes. Headbangers Ball and 120 Minutes. They all faded out and, and were, were axed by the time you have the rise of the TRL. Right. And and I think you're onto something here because it became because 120 minutes would have been where you saw the REM video and then all of the other quote and I only use alternative because that was the sort of record store label yeah for a lot of this all of the alternative groups like your Pixies your Cure your you know um, stuff that you would see like Liz Fair and Kate Bush and um, the Breeders and 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 things that would pop into the mainstream air pl- uh, the the main rotation. But they would go – they would dig deep. MTV2 in its very first few years started to serve this purpose. Yes. Because they, they were just running videos all the time and they would run random shit. Um, like they would – Yeah, they would, had a lot of airtime to fill. Yeah, they had a lot of airtime to fill. So you, it was almost like classic old school MTV. They were just running videos. And um, you know, MTV Raps was the same way and they canceled that because rap and R&B and hip hop had become so mainstream and so much the norm that they didn't feel the need for it. And Headbangers Ball was the same thing. You know, you you, you listen to people from metal bands um, of the late 90s and of the 90s get interviewed and they talk about going and being home to watch or being somewhere they where they could watch Headbangers Ball mm-hmm. because it was that important to them. And and But I think by the late 90s, everything has become – 
MTV has said, well, everything's kind of the same now. Like, we don't need these specialty shows. We're going to push reality television. Oh, jeez. Start yeah. to push that in a big way. Fucking road and, rules, yeah. And, yeah, and then, and then we're going to push what the kids are listening to. So you have a very – there's a very narrow – um, group of, of bands that really got a lot of airplay on MTV. And then VH1 kind of was the slightly softer edged stuff that yeah. wasn't, that was that skewed a little bit older. So you would get, you might, you would get more Jewel on, or Alanis Morissette on VH1 in the late 90s um, than you would get, but you wouldn't get as much maybe Christina Aguilera. Uh, on VH1, although you wouldn't, then both those channels suck now. But um, <laughs> but like, but okay, but like you, you're right about Creed because Creed Creed is almost like the, and I'm going to use the word afterbirth because they had they use they like they they have it in a song of theirs. They're the afterbirth of like live. Oh like, yeah, I could I see, dated yeah. this girl in high school who fucking loved live, and I can't listen to that group anymore. But you know, there's that same sort of of thing. And then um, you have another group that was as big as, as Creed was at the time, Limp Biscuit. Oh my God! Yeah, and they're the they're that afterbirth of Corn, um, and I would say a little bit of derivative of say like Rage Against the Machine, even though. I've always been, I, yeah. I mean, like music. Like I've always been reluctant to put them in the same category with with one another, simply because rage is very. On it's the one not, hand, it bombastic. On the other hand, erudite. They're, they're not. They're not in the same category so much as that. Limp Biscuit to me was always a watered down version of the other. Yeah, it's like the frat boy friendly version of. Yeah, exactly. Because because I um, I could I could give or take I could take or leave Zach Delaroca. I'll be completely honest with you, but like Tom Morello, nobody is, played the way he did. Nobody. That, that for um, I will never forget. We were, I had I'm not one of those people who keeps up on current music, mm-hmm. but we were watching um, one of the music video channels, and Amanda and I are sitting there, and they start playing. It was the very first Audio Slave song that was released. It was Cochise. Mm-hmm. And you, I'm like, is that Tom Morello? And then all of a sudden, you hear Chris Cornell, and the two of us were like, "Yeah, yeah, that <laughs> I was that first audio slave album." Well, that was when you think about it. I mean, one of the defining hallmarks of the '60s, and God knows the '70s, mm-hmm. was the supergroup, mm-hmm. and you had these these band members that were kind of famous in their own right for whatever band they came from. And what would happen is they would join bands with one another. And so theoretically you were getting one of the best singers or most famous or what have you with one of the best guitar players. Yeah. And you're getting these and they would call them super groups. Right. And as it happens, Audio Slave is probably the only supergroup of our generation that I can remember. Yeah. You know, there may have been others and I'm just blanking on them, but that was the first time I can ever remember thinking, so shit, we have our own supergroup now. And because it was basically ra- the the core members of Rage Against the Machine, mm-hmm. less their front man. Mm-hmm. And now you have a and now it's being led by or at least lyrics are being it's being fronted, at least, by, by uh, uh, Chris Cornell, Cornell from Soundgarden. Yeah, 
And I thought, you know, because in my opinion, Temple of the Dog doesn't really count as a super. That's group. a tribute band. Yeah, and it was so, that was a tribute project. Velvet Revolver probably comes in a close second. Okay, yeah, because that was Scott Weiland slash, and bits of pieces of Guns N' Roses and other bands. Yeah, and so you know that I could, you know, okay, yeah, I'll give the nod on that, but mm-hmm. you know. Like I say, I mean, Temple of the Dog doesn't really count because Soundgarden and Pearl Jam were both nobodies at the time that they recorded that. So I don't think yeah, that yeah, yeah. counts. And then, you know, so you go on down the line and there are all of these qualifiers and whatnot. And but Audio Slave, I mean, what an inspired idea. You know, yeah. but getting back to R.E.M., you're right. They kind of peter out toward the end of the decade. They pop up every once in a while. Mm-hmm. Um usually in the VH1 set in the early 2000s. And I did they broke up, what, three or four years ago? Yeah, like 2009 or something yeah. like that, I think. And the frustrating thing was I think a number of people heard that they had officially broken up, did their farewell tour, retired, and, and formally retired. Not like, you know, Cher on her 50,000th farewell tour. Um <laughs> and I think a lot of people were like, wait, the band was still together because they really had – they hadn't – I don't want to say they had faded into obscurity, but um, they had kind of gone back underground in a sense or, or to a or, – or settled into a niche where they were not on the top of the world. And people tend to forget that alternative – what we called alternative music in the early 1990s or the late 80s into the 90s or what was labeled alternative – Never, you know, didn't always rest on the power of the major single because I was looking at where some of the songs in this album charted and um, like Drive, um, I've got it right in front of me. Let me see if I can find the um, the chart position. Drive hit 28 on the Billboard Hot 100. It hit number one of the modern rock tracks. Yes. So that's your alternative. But then I was thinking about there's another song that will come up that's track number four, which is Everybody Hurts. I remember that song being fucking everywhere, as as with Man on the Moon as well. Yeah. Yet the mainstream charts for that, it it bear, I don't think that either of them hit the top twenty. And I was like, wait, I, so I think, I think in a big way, it's, um, the early nineties is very, very album oriented. And you're right toward the late nineties, you get very, very single oriented, uh, which is where we are in a still in a big way. Yeah. Even bigger, uh, arguably yeah. because of the fact that it's almost a kind of mean spirited contradiction to call mm-hmm. it the music industry anymore. Yeah. Cause it's really not, I mean, they're really just a singles factory and, mm-hmm. You know, I mean, whether or not anybody thinks that's a good thing or not, these days it's all about, you know, with the advent of iTunes and whatnot, it's all mm-hmm. about getting a song that people can sing along to or hum or, or just what have you. And the idea of crafting an album, mm-hmm. it's just not something that anybody really aspires to anymore. And I think it's sad. That's just it, it, it is, although to up-and-coming bands or bands that are still trying to get their stuff together but they want to get their stuff out there, it has promoted the rise of, once again, the EP. Yes. Because there are a lot of band- acts now that do throw a four- or five-song EP together, and you can download that. And that it's that's a really good marketing strategy uh, because with rock um, or mainstream rock and things like that or, or 
whatever fucking label we want to put on it, but you want more than just one song out there, but you might not have a full album together or you might not have the resources to do a full album right at that point. So there's, there's pros and cons of, of the way we've, of the way music distribution has gone, uh, since the early to mid two thousands. Um, I was actually thinking of why I never really owned this. I never owned this on CD. I downloaded it from iTunes a few years ago Hmm. and I was thinking about why. And one of them has to do with the, bullshit of like what I prioritized in terms of what music I would listen to and my taste, depending on what my friend's tastes were. And then money because CDs, they CDs were, were expensive. expensive. <laughs> and when you're spending your money, when you, when you only get so much for mowing lawns here and there yeah, and you're spending it on comics first, yeah, CDs became the thing I asked for Christmas and my birthday. So you know, I didn't always did get CDs, but then again, our generation and and the generation after us and before us, we a lot of us obtain music on the sort of beg, borrow, and steal method of, um, you know, CDs might have been fifteen, sixteen, seventy dollars a pack a pop, but a three pack of one hundred twenty minute Max L cassettes was less than ten dollars, and I could certainly afford those. And um, this album. Uh, in the same way, Nevermind. Nevermind was another album I didn't own an actual physical copy of for uh, for a number of years because it was always around. Yeah. Like, I always knew somebody who had it. So if I wanted to listen to Automatic for the People, I borrowed it or I just taped some songs off of it. Mm-hmm. And then it wasn't until I needed to own the album because I wanted to listen to the album that I actually went out and bought the album. And I think Nevermind was the other album that was like that. Everybody had a copy of that. I didn't need to get my own copy because I could just borrow it from other people. Well, and there, the, you know, there there is a sort of a dark side to that in that when you were the borrower, it could work out really well. But when you were the borrower, or I guess when you were the loner, mm-hmm. that's where I found myself. My my, I think I guess it was my junior year in high school. And this is more to do really with never mind, but you know, fuck it. Yeah. Uh, when else am I going to get a chance to tell this? Story? No, no, it's cool. It's cool. Um, I loaned my copy of never mind. No, I guess I had to have been a senior because what I did was when I, I, I got sick with mono and I was just way too fucking sick to even go to school. Mm-hmm. And so I'm sure you can appreciate that when you're stuck at home, you literally, you, you just, you, you can't really do anything really productive you will do anything to keep yourself occupied. And so when I had finally healed to at least well enough that I could, you know, go somewhere, I couldn't really go to school, but I, I could go somewhere. I could yeah. run errands and stuff. I would go to, <laughs> cause this was the nineties. I went to blockbuster music and I bought my, my goal because of the fact that I had so much money at that time was my goal was basically to pick up <clears throat> all of these CDs that, I liked and respected, but had never really bought one of which was, uh, never mind. Yeah. And so I, I want to say that I owned that CD for almost three months and I got, uh, I was well enough. I could finally go back to school and I mentioned, you know, uh, just in passing, you know, that there was a song, I fuck if I can even in bloom, it was something mm-hmm. that I, there was some song on there. I thought, you know, I know people talk all kinds of shit about how awesome this song is and everything, but I got to tell you, I think it's kind of shit myself. And 
the guy I said this to, I mean, he just about had a fucking conniption. He's like, whoa, you, <laughs> you know, you, you have that CD like you have like you own like physically that you have that CD. I'm like, yeah, it's in my car. You know, they mass produced these, you know that. right? <laughs> and he's like, dude, can I borrow it? And he was like, and, and guys, I mean, keep in mind, this is like 1999 here that we're talking about. I mean, this is not a recent release by any stretch of the imagination. You could probably find that uh, on the cheap. Back yeah. Then. And that, yeah. And I did. I mean, I think I paid like eight or nine bucks for it. I mean, it was, it was nothing. And so I was, I told her, I was, okay, sure, I guess. Yeah. And so it was that classic story where you loan something to somebody and then just fucking you never get it back. So I saw the guy like a year later after I'd graduated. I'm like, oh, by the way, do you have my Nirvana CD? And guy says, uh, yeah, it's at home. I'll I'll give it to you at some point or another. And I was like, okay, well, as long as I get it back. Fucking never got it back. Got back. And so I started working at this uh, at a, a company. This is like, I want to say two years ago. Mm-hmm. And that guy worked there. Right. <laughs> and it took me a sec to even recognize him because I hadn't seen him in this, at this point in like, it had been years, years and years. And so literally the first words out of my mouth were, hey, you got my Nirvana CD? <laughs> <laughs> it's been like 15 years. He's uh, like, no, I, I think it's gone. I'm like, okay, well, you owe me 10 bucks. <laughs> Somewhat, I, I was really, I was very good at returning people's stuff. Um, but someone out there has my copy of, of all things, Van Halen's 5150. I'm not aching to get that back. I was going to ask, uh, yeah, how did you ever come about, did you like buy that on purpose or was that a I think or? somebody gave that to me. Okay. Um, I think, honestly think it was. Well, I mean, I'm not judging you. I'm just. No, no, I'm trying to remember. I don't think, I, I think that was, I think that was a present from somebody. Okay. So. Um, anyway, yeah. Well, that's uh, basically as much as we so, talked about drive. That's about as much as I have to say about drive. You got? Well, no. I, I had written down. I had written down. Is this an anti-pop song? Um, in the sense that it's the lyrics sound like it should be the sort of anthemic um, song, mm-hmm. and yet the melody does not particularly match. You know, like I said, there's an irony in there that um, that really typifies that period of the 1990s. Uh, and that that our our particular generation's sort of embrace of that sort of ironic ideal in a sense, but um, but REM isn't doing it in a way that's um, they're not winking at us in that regard, though. I think mm. you know, yeah, they're not saying they're not saying look at how clever we are, and that some band some bands some movies some things from that era do that. Agreed. So. <clears throat> So, what's the next song on the album? Track number two. Try Not to Breathe. I will try not to breathe. I can hold my head still with my hands and my knees. These eyes are the eyes of the old. All right, so you went first last time, so I'll I'll take the lead on this one. Go right ahead. This is probably the darkest song on the entire album because no bullshit, no sugarcoating. This literally is about dying. Mm-hmm. And this is it's being done just to kind of offset 
and kind of distinguish this song from another one we're going to be talking about before too long. <clears throat> this song is a—it's not just about dying. Unlike another song on this CD, this is about personally. This is this is from the stand. Like the narrator is the one who's dying in this song, and in a weird kind of way, I mean, I. I'd almost want to want to say that this song is kind of meant to be sort of kitschy or ironic or, or something like that. And if the rest of the album was more upbeat, I might even go so far as to say that would be my defined interpretation of it, just because of the fact that even at even in the fall of 1992, you know, the winds of change were blowing through the trees of culture.、Mm-hmm. Kind of mix my metaphors here, and it was kind of. Trendy, I guess, for these really, really dark rock songs to get like major league radio play. I mean,、yeah. I think we're only about like we may actually be at the moment, but to kind of give you an idea of what was contemporary at this time, a song about a, a teenage kid who goes into a high, to a high school and blows his own head off. He basically commits suicide in front of his entire class. Yeah, that was a number one hit for Pearl Jam. That one video of the year, yeah,、and、around the same time, yeah, it seems they were within a year of each other. Yeah, well, and it's weird when you start actually looking at what was on the charts and what was big. It's kind of weird to think there's a lot of there's a lot more overlap because you know when you when you dig back to this stuff, at least in my mind, what I tend to do is it's like I mentally separate REM from what was happening around them, or I mentally separate just whoever、yeah. from what was happening around them. And that's not really the way that life goes. Life is messy; it gets everywhere. And so, if the rest of this album, "Automatic for the People," if it if it was a little bit more in line with "Document," and this was the lone weird a-、uh, aberration where the band touched on some something that was just kind of almost over the top dark,、mm-hmm. I would almost want to say that they're doing it in a kind of ironic way since it's so different from everything else on the CD. Yeah, but that's not really what this song is. I mean, this is—it's it, very literal, it's very direct, and it's very to the point. Somebody's dying, and so there you go. Yeah, the lilt and the there's this sort of lilt in the music, and that the chord progression reminds me of、um, stuff on a couple of earlier albums that is lighter in tone, or at least lyrically. Uh, half a world away, and then in the album before that,、uh, you are the everything, and they don't match up completely, but it's this sort of similar sound.、Mm-hmm. Yeah.、Um, of and and it's it's that sound that I have always sl- just associated with the REM of this period.、Um, but yeah, it's it's very directed. It's very dark,、um, and this is this this seeds some acts that would come later, like.、Um, Eels or Elliot Smith or some of these very、uh, they would kind of be they would be a little more on the on the、uh, the alternative but folk alternative and their message their lyrics would be very very dark and depressed in a way that was that that seemed very personal as well、um, but I think REM influenced a lot of acts. Across a lot of different genres too, and I think this is this is one of those examples. I I really like this because it's because the lyrics are so dark, yet the melody once again does not oversell it. 
You know, like no. it's not a dirge. Um, it's not. Um, it's not like something I can never have. Oh yeah, that, that is a funeral march. Right? You know, which which I love that album, but I mean, it's not that direct. the The music, the music is, uh, you know, is 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 holding back, and that's that's one of the things I've noted on a couple of the songs here. There's a little the REM has this really deft touch with its with the music and the lyrics, and there's subtlety throughout. Um, and I don't know if it's because that was just the way the band was clicking, or if it's because the way they um, the way they were recorded or composed, because I know a lot of times um, the music and the lyrics were actually written separately, mm-hmm. um, and they would match things together as as so they ha- as, as uh, then they would kind of bring them all together and see what what worked for them. And I don't know if this is a product of that or, or what, but yeah, but there's this could have been a lot more heavy handed, and there are. Very few times where REM gets so heavy-handed that it that it doesn't um, that it doesn't work, and and that that's what I love about that's why I like this song so much as well. It's you know it does not fool around with what it's about, but at the same time it it also doesn't it doesn't beat you over the head with it because they allow it they'll give it some subtlety as well. Agreed. And my opinion is that there's a little bit of a contrast between melody and music here. Mm-hmm. over and against the actual lyrical subject matter. I actually think it the the contrast there, to me, it's this the combination is successful. Yeah. And in, in that it's not like you say, it's not as over the top dark simply because, yeah, you know, the lyrics are what they are on the one hand, but on the other hand, you know, the music doesn't really follow suit on that. And I think that's actually that's what saves this song, like you were yeah. saying, from being something I can never have. So I, I, I really yeah. do actually get into that. So yeah. it, it, it I, I think it, it actually works in a weird kind of way as a pop song. I'm not saying you'd want to release this as a single. I'm just no. saying that from, uh, from the standpoint of melody and instrumentation, it's a kind of single friendly song. Even if this, God knows this is not the song you release as a single. You don't necessarily get that though, from the instrumentation and, and melody is what it, Anyway, mm-hmm. that's basically what I mean. There's, there's just not a whole lot to comment on here when it comes to trying no, to breathe. There'll be a few songs in here that we don't have a lot of comments on because it's just so easy to, to talk about what what's going on there. There's just not a ton to say. But at the same time, we it's not that we don't appreciate the, you know, what's on the album. <laughs> right. So I guess in relation to that, the next one on uh, on the docket here. Track three, The Sidewinder Sleeps Tonight. I think I went first uh, for the last one. So, what, uh, what do you got for this one? Um, I have to. I want to start off with a little bit of trivia because in in listening to this album yes. and, and going through it, I wanted to at least uh, at least look up a little bit of, um, of of the story behind it or interpretations of it. This was deliberately put on the album because it's lighter. Yes, they felt that they needed a break, which 
I can completely appreciate. It's a little bit sillier of a pop song. Um, they said it's something about the subject matter might be somebody who just doesn't have a place to, to stay and needs to crash. There's some kind of nonsensical lyrics. There's a point where you actually hear Michael Stipe giggle. Yes. Um, and it's because, and I was like, oh, is he laughing at the just the silliness of the lyrics? But no, it actually, um, I looked it up, is that he could not per- correctly pronounce Zeus. He kept saying Zeus. And they were trying to get him to do it right. He's laughing at that. Um tiny little bit of trivia it is a callback and the music is a callback to the song the lion sleeps tonight yes um they actually paid the whoever the songwriters the record company whoever owns the lion sleeps tonight for the rights to the song so they could use the influence and the stipulation of the contract was that they had to cover the song and it's on one of the B-sides of, of this single is is a cover of The Lion Sleeps Tonight. I've never heard that. Wow. That was, it was on the Wikipedia page. So take it as you will. <laughs> but I was like, no, and I've never heard that cover. I've never heard that. But I was like, oh, that's that's just total, total trivia. But yeah, it's, um, it is a, it's poppy. The lyrics are, the, especially the chorus, which goes, and you posted about this the other day. It goes, call me when you try to wake her up. And it's a very misinterpreted lyric, like, as in people don't know what the heck he actually is saying. It's a, excuse me while I kiss this guy yeah. situation. <laughs> um, and it, there's something about this song that sounds like it almost begins in the middle of something. Like, there's no lead in, it's like, boom, boom, doo, 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 doo. And it's, and then it gets going. But, um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's a fun little it's it's a fun little thing on the order of like stand or orange crush or you know some of those songs agreed that we're used to and what i posted on on facebook and this this is going to make me look sort of bad but what i posted on facebook i'm just going to read it i said during the chorus stipe says quote call me when you try to wake her unquote and you guys just wouldn't believe some of the mangled lyrics that I've heard for this and the story I went on to tell is an ex-girlfriend once swore to me that the line went come and try to take eggs (laughs) that's not that's not the reason that I dumped her although that didn't exactly help her prospects very much I was in a sort of crummy mood for most of my early 20s what can I say and that would that that's what I put up on Facebook and it, it, it is true. I mean, basically what happened was I'd started up, this was the fall of 2001. I'd started up at, uh, or started back, because uh, I wasn't starting college, but I started, I went back to college because fucking the semester started. And I just gotten out, uh, and uh, Tom, I'm not sure if you're going to be able to relate to this or not, but... It was about six months before I'd gotten out of this kind of epic and big relationship with somebody. Mm-hmm. And this is the sort of breakup that you have with somebody when, like, you throw them out of your apartment and you say, look, if I see you again in this life, I'm shooting you on sight. Right. Get stay the fuck away from me. You know, it's like it's that kind of breakup. Uh-huh. And so. I don't want to say that I was on the prowl my. My. Uh, I, I guess that year during the fall of 2001. But I I was very open to the idea of starting up with somebody new because of the fact that, you know, when when you get out of 
a big relationship, what I find a lot of people want to do is like the question they're asking themselves is, do I still have it? You know? Yeah. And yeah. so I wanted to basically not necessarily have a relationship, but, you know, hang out with somebody, spend time and, you know, just find out, you know, do I still have it? And as it happens, there's, you know, somebody had started up at, at my uh, college that, that same semester, she just moved uh, from uh, Portland, uh, Oregon, and we, and I, I shall call her Portland because I don't think I want to use her real name. No, that's cool. But this was definitely a, I can't even say it was a physical attraction. It was basically just me trying to figure out, you know, who am I now that I, I am no longer in this relationship anymore. Mm-hmm. And so part of that is spending time with somebody new. And I wish I could tell you that this was a very successful relationship and it maybe could have gone somewhere, but it's just, you know, I was the weakest link. No, this, this girl was, she's a complete fucking idiot. You know, I mean, I don't mean that to be mean or harsh or anything, but she is just literally a stupid person. You know, her IQ is exceedingly low. And so because of that, I mean, this is going to sound bad, but you know, it's part of the, process of growing up, I guess, you know, you realize some of what your needs are in a relationship. And what I came to understand is I need to be able to talk to somebody, you know, I can't just be with them. No, I I need, I I need to talk. I'm a talker. And so I could not talk to her. I mean, it's every time I tried to have a conversation with her, it just fucking went nowhere. And, but I did have this song because I picked her up, you know, one day and because well, anyway, there's a kind of stupid bullshit story behind it. But anyway, picked her up one day, and I happened to have this CD going in my car. And it was at the Sidewinder Sleeps Tonight. And mm-hmm. oddly enough, she I don't want to say she knew this song, because as it turns out, she didn't. But she was familiar with this song. And she's like, oh, I really like this song. And and actually heard her, you know, as, you know, sing, you know, sing the chorus. And it sounded to me like she was getting it wrong, because what she was singing was, Come and try to take eggs. Come and try to take eggs. And I'm like, what the fuck does that even mean? You know, I mean, I look, I, I'm no I, I'm no connoisseur of, of lyrics or anything, but I'm pretty sure you're getting that wrong. I always thought what he was trying to say was call me when you try to wake her, you know, call me when you try to wake her, you know. Yeah. And and she's like, oh, no, no, no. He's saying, come and try to take eggs. And I'm like, you're a fucking idiot. And so, like I say, it doesn't make me look very good, but, you know, it's. <laughs> Like I say, it's one of those moments in life when you realize this person is not for me. And I remember looking her in the eye in that moment and realizing I got no future with her. This is never going to work. I'm The, the day's going to come. I don't know when, but the day's going to come when this relationship is over and it's going to be because I dumped her. And that day is going to come very soon, I think. So, like I say, makes me look terrible, but here we are. Yeah, I mean the song's not very deep anyway. I mean, it's and it's deliberately not deep. Um, it's not, from what I understand, it's not one that was insisted upon by the record company. Because record companies will do that uh, to bands that have less prowess than REM, they will insist a certain song goes on an album because they need a single. Yeah. Um, 
or the songs or the album's biggest hit is the song that almost didn't make the album. You've heard there's tons of stories like that out That's there. That's what put Sheryl Crow on the map. All I want to do, she that was yeah. a throwaway song. She almost cut it. Yeah. And um this is a throwaway song in a sense, but that they uh that they put on because they just felt they needed uh they needed to uh, uh to lighten the tone for a little bit because you can only sustain so much of an album's worth of the same sort of emotional beat. Uh, I brought up Nine Inch Nails earlier. You know, it's not easy to listen to an entire Nine Inch Nails album all the yeah. way through, especially if you are there, because there is no lighter, poppier um, sound. Now, there are Nine Inch Nails songs that are, like on Pretty Hate, there are a couple of songs that are. Uh, a little f- more fun than others. I'd say sin is a little, you know, a little bit more, uh, a little less, you know, screaming and hate filled than yeah. some of the other ones. But REM realizes that if you're going to have everybody want to listen to this album all the way through and then come back, listen again, you need moments like this where you just kind of pick it up again and, and, and you need a breather. Yeah. And this is a brush of fresh air. Um, but then we get right back to the earnestness with the next song. And what is the next song? It's Everybody Hurts. All right. I'll I'll go first on this one. Um Everybody Hurts. In brief, life fucking sucks sometimes mm-hmm. but that's why we have friends and family so this is a song where this is probably the song on automatic for the people that's I would think easiest to make fun of mm-hmm. and you know just to be fair I mean REM they really did shoot themselves in the foot by doing such a pretentious video for this song but I think the the real moment that you could put a fork in this song, because it it truly is over now, it actually came rather quickly, and I think rather mercifully, when, I want to say it was a Wayne's World special, in in my mind it was on MTV, but I could be wrong, but Wayne and Garth, it's like they took either the original video footage for this song, or they just kind of made their own. But they came up with their own subtitles for the song. Yeah. And these are just way over the top, <laughs> silly subtitles. And for those of you who don't know, the video is basically people sitting around on a freeway in their cars, moving nowhere, going nowhere, doing Stuck nothing. Stuck in traffic, basically. Yeah. It's like I-95 or I-495. On a Thursday. Yeah. And so... And there are these little subtitles that'll flash across the screen that basically indicate like what these people are thinking like I've got cancer or or, my daughter ran away or I'm gonna kill myself or I'm gonna kill my children or or just fucking whatever it's gonna be you know I mean it's just it's so ripe for parody just by showing up and so one of the subtitles it it was words to the effect of it was this old woman she's sitting behind the wheel and she's just staring blankly off into the distance and the subtitle says I'm a vegetable and I 
I don't know why, but it's that either killed this song or it saved this song. I'm not sure which. But all I know is that this is another overplayed radio song, and it's really to the point that I really can't stand listening to it anymore. I was never a big fan of Everybody Hurts, but the nonstop radio and MTV thing really killed this song for me. Uh, where are you with it? Um, there's a before I get to that. There's a uh, a scene in an episode of Daria where they parody this, where they're stuck in traffic on the way to like. Lollapalooza or something and they're just sitting in traffic and all of a sudden the thing starts up and and I think the parody of it lasts maybe 30 seconds it's not very long but it's just like one of those perfect beats that that Daria would have um, very often and I just I always and I was I, for years I, I have to rent the show I guess to, to watch it again because they can't really find clips of that show online very often but um, I just oh, I think of that um, it, and it was a nice parody of it because it was just simple to the point. It didn't go without. Um, I actually, uh, just to plug my own site, back on February 5th, um, and you can go over to popcultureaffidavit.com and just search Everybody Hurts or the title that posts is the most earnest song of the 90s. <laughs> and I did a whole breakdown of the song. because And, and what inspired it was um, I watch, uh, I do a unit in my 10th Advanced English on... Um, of short stories, essays, and a few other things uh, that centers around identity and what makes your identity up and, and these explorations through through relationship with your parents, through this and that. And one thing that we watch, we watch two television episodes. We watch the first episode of Freaks and Geeks. We watch the first episode of My So-Called Life. And at the end of My So-Called Life, which came out, um, the pilot episode of My So-Called Life was filmed in 93, but it, the show didn't get picked up until 94, so it aired in 94. And the very end of the episode, Claire Danes' character, Angela Chase, uh, everything's happened in the episode. She's coming home, and she's talking. It's late at night on, like, a Friday. She's talking to uh, her, her friend, her neighbor, and all of a sudden, she stops dead. And she sees her father across the street talking to another woman. Her father had told her mother, I'm going out to play pool. And... You can see, I mean, I, you can see her stomach flip. And all of a sudden, this song starts playing on the soundtrack. And I always have kids who snicker at that moment. And I'm like, guys, there's nothing more early 90s than this moment. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's everybody true. hurts playing over an episode of my song called Life. It's, I, I, I've never, I tired of the song after a while. I've come back to it because mm. um, I haven't heard of it. The video is... The video was what was necessary to get the song on the air, on the um, on the uh, uh, played on MTV because mm-hmm. I just don't think this song would have with a with a lesser video with a different video would have really um, done and gone anywhere as far as video airplay. Um, it's it is really earnest. And I was thinking about it because there's another song in the CD that is my I can't listen to the song. Um, anymore but um but i'll direct people to the blog post for a really in depth of like you know what i think about this song and i don't mind the video so much i do like the end of the video not the whole walking away but i I love the end of this song where where he says and hold on and the music picks up like that because i I like the swell of that music yeah and the way you kind of glide across the the thing i wrote down i compared this um not in the in the post but when i was taking notes on this um if I compared it to Bridge Over Troubled Water. <laughs> okay, I can't. And wait the reason for that is 
that Bridge Over Troubled Water is also an incredibly earnest song. It has this beautiful vocal by Art Garfunkel, and it has some more subtle moments. And Bridge Over Troubled Water is um, back, if you think back to the days of American Idol, that was one of the songs that people would pick up and sing, and they would glory note the entire song. They would, you know, American Idol... People who went on American Idol operated under the idea that loud equals good. And they would overdo it. The other song they would overdo would be Imagine by John Lennon. You need to have a certain hand to get pull this song off. If somebody, if a modern day pop star tried to pick up Everybody Hurts and cover it, they wouldn't. They would it would be this overblown, bombastic, let me hit every note loudly and scream and yell them, or it would be some sort of like very twee sounding Taylor Swift piece of shit. Yeah. Ugh. Believe it or not, as annoying as this song can be, because it can be very annoying. You can you, you can you, you need it in small doses, and it did get overplayed. Yeah. A lot. It it's it's um, Stipe is Stipe's like perfect for the vocals because Stipe doesn't overplay his hand too much. He comes dangerously close. It's but I think the I, I, maybe maybe I'm off in my comparison to Bridge Over Trouble Water, but I mean that's the song that I can closely compare it to because they both have that same sort of a they have the same message in effect, in a yeah. sense, yeah. and then B they have the same sort of very straightforward earnest tune to them and and uh and garfunkel it has this very high lilting voice and he almost goes all the way but he pulls back where he has to and at the end he does have have that it soars at the end this doesn't soar so much as it glides but stipe stipe kick allows to kick into gear at the end but he he lets it he lets it be very, very steady and very soft and very slow through most of the uh, music. I think the video – there are times when I like the video. There are times when I don't like the video. I think the video does not do a very good service to the song. Agreed. And you know, I've, I, I've thought that the one thing, literally the one thing that saves this from being full power ballad mm-hmm. is the fact that it doesn't really have power to it at the end. It, this is – it's like yeah. it, it remains acoustic yeah. throughout. If, the, if if they'd gone fully electric for this song at the end, this song, I mean, if you think it's parodied now, my God, you know, I mean, people would, I, they would never live this <laughs> I'm, down. I'm telling you, if this were an American Idol competition piece, and I don't know why I keep coming back to the show, or if it were some sort of um, pop diva, she'd be do, he or she'd be doing the song, and at the hold on part, that's when the that's when the people in choir robes would walk in, yeah, oh, and it oh, would oh. just be oh, and you're like really? Yeah, oh god ugh. Well, and so the, the hell of it is on Glee or something, you know? Yeah, and, 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 and that's actually the thing I mean, my guess, I don't know this to be true it's not like I can predict the future, but my guess is that there's going to be like a mainstream commercial cover of this song at some point or another. And that's exactly what they're going to do. And it's going to be a big fucking hit and nobody's going to get it. Yeah. So, but uh, the other point I make in the blog post that I'll make it now is that this is completely out of place with everything else that was on the charts in 1993. Yes. The, I just looked at the charts and most of it was R and B, but there was like one exception to the rule of, you know, what was rock and, and there was this and there was like, I would do anything for love. But I won't do that oh. by Meatloaf, which are two two songs that were completely out of place 
with everything else in 93. And I think that's one of the other things that, that made this song um, stand out uh, from, from the crowd. But yeah, the video helps it in that. I think it got it a lot of attention, right? Um, but the video also hurts it okay. uh, in the same way that it's just, I, it's hard for people who know that song and the video so well um, to, to separate the two. Although I wonder if you give this album to teenagers now, um, if they would like this song or like if, if you, if you talk to somebody who'd never seen the video, what they would think of the song. Cause people from our generation, like sometimes the videos are very hard to separate from the, uh, from the songs. And this is a good example of them. <laughs> oh, look at you. You're so diplomatic. <laughs> okay. I'm trying. Okay. Well, that's basically what I have for yeah. everybody hurts. You ready to move on or do you got a little bit more? Uh, no, just, just, Go to Pop Culture Avenue, David, read my blog. <laughs> uh, please do. Yeah, which people need to be doing anyway, so that's that's good. All right, so uh, this next song is New Orleans Instrumental Number 1. It's instrumental. Yeah, so uh, this may actually defy rational <laughs> critique. Pretty. Yeah. But um, do you want to do you want to take the lead, or do you want me to? I, do you want me I to? have I have three notes about this. Okay, good, because that's uh, that's what I've got. Yeah. <laughs> I said I don't know what to write about this because it's just an instrumental piece. It's mm-hmm. a pretty. It's pretty. It's pr- it's a pretty instrumental that bridges two songs. Everybody hurts and uh, sweetness follows, and. I did make a note that bands would do this from time to time. Um, they would either put instrumental tracks as kind of transitions between two songs, or they would put like weird, like talking yeah. between two songs. Uh, of all people, Janet Jackson did that on a couple of albums. Uh, or they would do it. They would have these sort of long, these kind of intros that kind of faded in a little bit at the beginning of a song that you kind of wanted to cut off. If you're putting out a tape, like I think it's um, once. Yeah, that's, yeah, Pearl that's exactly what I was gonna say. <laughs> it's basically what this is. It's just like sort of you know. Whereas, whereas, just to bring it really quickly back to Van Halen, there's eruption, which leads directly into their cover of "You Really Got Me." Yeah. Which, and and then um, on Metallica's first album, there's Anesthesia, pulling teeth, which leads into Whiplash. You could you could listen to those two songs back to back as well, and um, they work. But you could also listen to them separately. This is just uh, yeah, I, I don't, I'm not sure why it's here. Um, it's not bad, but I uh, that's about all I have to say. <laughs> yeah, well, this is a a little bit of a as the listeners can hear, a kind of a turgid instrumental and. I guess to start with, I'm not sure what exactly about this song is supposed to relate to New Orleans. Because, I mean, on a musical level, I've always associated New Orleans music with jazz and the blues mm-hmm. and maybe a little bit of bluegrass. Yeah. So if New Orleans instrumental number one had more of something like, I guess, sort of like a like a Dixieland type of sound, I totally get it. But as it yeah. stands... I don't really get where the title of this song is coming from, but I will say that 
I want to at least believe that I can kind of see where what REM were up to here, because this is sort of like another Sidewinder Sleeps Tonight in as much as if you take Sidewinder Sleeps Tonight and New Orleans Instrumental off of this album, then what you're basically left with is Drive, Try Not to Breathe, Everybody Hurts, and then Sweetness Follows. And that's the stuff that mass suicides are made of. <laughs> so... The, you you don't get a lighthearted you don't get a lighter touch on this album if you take those out until Man on the Moon. Yeah, well, and even that there are some implications there, but we'll we'll circle back to that when we yeah, get there. Yeah, but yeah. suffice it to say, what I want to believe is going on here is the band members recognized that this is going to be a pretty fucking heavy mm-hmm. album from just like in, in terms of lyrics and themes and whatnot. So what they want to do is is never get so over-the-top dark and serious and sad that they lose the listener either to yeah. disinterest or to death by suicide. So they they try to break things up as much as they can. I mean, honestly, when you think about just like the raw materials of what makes up this album, like these songs... I'm. I really can't think of very many other ways to order these songs in a way that is musically interesting. You know. Yeah. So I think. I, I think they made the right choice. Is basically what I'm driving at here. But yeah. that's really about as much as I have to say about New Orleans instrumental. Yeah. You know, it's all good. When you're talking about movies and you're talking about pacing of movies and with those that are action heavy or say horror movies, all those movies have moments where you need to let the audience breathe. You know, yeah, because otherwise you lose them. They get tired out by the time the big thing comes and it's underwhelming to them because they've been so they've lost their energy and the energy of this album is um, it's not a high energy album, but there's a tone and there's an energy this album that you need to you need to ease up a little bit here and there. But I think you're right. I think it's just another way to just ease up the throttle a little bit so that you can let the audience um, into because sweetness follows is your next song and it's it's I think a little it's bit of a bummer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, and speaking of, uh, are you ready to get into sweetness follows? Do you- yeah, let's go right ahead. Ready and to bury your father and your mother What did you think when you lost another? I used to wonder why did you bother Distance from one to the other Okay, so, sweetness follows All right, this is the second darkest song on the album. Now, this isn't quite as dark as as "Try Not to Breathe," but whenever you just read the or listen to the lyrics, "Readying to bury your father and your mother," what did you think when you lost another? I used to wonder why did you bother? Distance from one, blind to the other, and so. This is pretty heavy. Now, having said that, this is not quite as dark as Try Not to Breathe because, at least in my opinion, and maybe I'm going to be wrong about this, but at least in my opinion, 
ultimately there's a peace and an acceptance to sweetness follows i mean it's right there in the title sweetness mm-hmm. follows and that's something that's i don't i mean that's just absent from try not to breathe i mean if nothing yeah. else yes nobody looks forward to burying their parents but that's life it's nature so on the one hand no it isn't pleasant of course but generally speaking it's it's part of life it is something to mourn but it's in i guess in general terms this you know losing your parents is not it's not quite the same tragedy that losing your child would be yes so this is basically i i mean i don't want to get to hakuna matata here but this really is kind of the circle of life you know what this is what? this is stopping by woods in the snowy evening by robert frost mm-hmm. which which on its surface is kind of a thing about a guy and a horse it is a man looking at and contemplating the idea of mortality but realizing he has more to go the woods are lovely dark and deep but I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep and miles to go before I sleep. And yeah, you're, he's not burying his parents in the poem or anything, but there is that sort of acceptance of the idea or the concept or the inevitability of death. And you're right. Losing your parents is less of a tragedy than losing a child. Losing your parents at a young age yeah. is something different but these are we are not losing our parents at a young age in this song no we are we are looking at aging and we are looking at that yes that inevitability of what is it like to be an adult and have to deal with these things that are going to eventually happen and I think as you approach they said that you know this is one of those things where they're starting to get into their 30s and they have been doing this for a while and um, you know I fortunately very fortunately as of as of this recording both of my parents are in very good health um they're in their my dad's in his early 70s my mom is in her late 60s so you know and they're they're okay but you know you do have those conversations every once in a while or those thoughts every once in a while because um when my mom was in her 30s i watched her uh um her her father died and my grandfather my dad's father died um you know, soon a few years after. So it's like when you're in your 30s and 40s, do you have to think about how old your parents are getting? You know, so. But there's, but like I said, there's an acceptance of it in the same way that you have. You know, there's more to go, and and you know you'll you'll deal with it. Right. Well, and this is one of those songs that. I, I mean, I, I can honestly say hand on heart, this is what I've always thought about it. I remember listening to this when I was, you know, uh, 14, 15, especially, you know, like during the latter portion of my uh, of my uh, high school career. Mm-hmm. And so when you think about it, that is very out of step for where I was in life at that point. But on the other hand, I mean, I was raised in a very Christian house and, you know, today I'm Catholic and so I don't want to, I don't, I'm, and I don't mention all of that specifically to get religious, except to say that it's kind of a, a, a pillar of the Christian faith to say that death is not the end. And somebody who's listening to this uh-huh. who's an atheist, you know, they may not necessarily agree with that, but then they don't have to. I'm saying that my interpretation of Michael Stipe's art here is filtered through my own life experiences, which in this case 
is a Christian background. And so, you know, I'm not mentioning this to upset anyone. I'm saying that part of the way that I process this song, it it really does come down to the title, you know, Sweetness Follows. I mean, no, getting there isn't going to be, it may not be all that much fun, but what waits for you on the other side is something better. Sweetness does follow. And so to me, this is a very apt name for a song that on the one hand, it deals with something heavy, but it isn't inherently negative. I mean, there's no happy, there is, I guess a bit of a happy ending with it's reassuring. Yeah. It's probably one of the better ways to put it. Right. And there's not a whole lot of, I guess, temporal reassurance with Mm -hmm. having to bury your, your, your child because of the fact that, I mean, you know, there's, this is not natural, you know, but when it's your parents' time, I mean, you know, it's, it's a natural logical progression of, of, of life. Yeah. So that, that was just sort of my reference point on all of this. No. And that's great. Cause, uh, cause my notes are, are, are a little bit of that, um, a little, le- a little more superficial than that. I was thinking about the, the music itself. Um, I love the, ch- I think that's a cello at the beginning. Yes. It's a cello at the beginning. Um, and I love that. Um, I, you said that John Paul Jones was the person who, uh, did the, the orchestral string arrangements on this. And he does a, 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 a tremendous job on, um, this. And, and there's another song we'll talk later where I absolutely love the strings. Um, it's very alt, alt nineties, um, and uh, I do like the guitar feedback at mm-hmm. the end is a little reminiscent to me of Drown by uh, the Pumpkins. Yes. Single soundtrack. Yes. Uh, I love I, that fucking song. And I mean, so I meant that as a compliment too. It's, it's this, it makes the little, little musical pieces make this very much of its time, but it's, it's, um, and you know what? It's a nice contrast in a sense to try not to breathe. Um, that they're both dark songs about a very dark topic, but yet at the same time, the, um, the message is slightly different. So it's a, a foil in a sense. Um, but the foil it's, it's very subtle, right? Because you have to actually listen to the lyrics and pay attention to the lyrics to know like where those differences are and where they are, where they contrasting about the same thing. So that's, it's a, again, this album is layered in a way with meaning and, and, and things in some regard that um, that a lot of bands weren't doing and a lot of bands don't do, you know, rock music was never really meant to be <laughs> rock music. It is its core is just, you know, something that meant to be is, can be very ephemeral and, and stuff like this keeps this album from being ephemeral. Right. Well, yeah. And I, I, I do think that is, that is a good point that this idea of an album that speaks to somebody in, in the context or at least the genre of rock is, it is a little, it is, I guess a sort of a a great historical irony because when you think about what the basic roots and foundations of what is rock and roll in -hmm. general, ain't nothing to do with thinking or feeling or mourning or regretting. It's about getting laid. I mean, it really is that simple, you know? So I don't know. Maybe this is uh, <laughs> maybe this is appropriate then, because uh, again, that too is part of the circle of life, I guess. But, yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's well, it's getting laid, and it's and it's having the blues, 
because you can't get laid. <laughs> rock comes from the blues, and the blues is all about, you know, she left me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well. Song about it goes like this. That is more or less what I've got for mm-hmm. the for a Sweetness Follows. And as it happens, that's also the closing bit for side one, which is, as R.E.M. labels it, drive side. Mm-hmm. So now do you have any kind of parting comments or anything like that before we move right along? No. And um, although I will say that it wasn't until I was um, – during research for this episode that I realized that the that the band had intended the album to have two sides because I always associated with this be just being on a CD. Yeah. Um, whereas older albums of the vintage of like the 70s, even the 80s, especially the 60s, I knew that there was one side, you know, there was a side A and a side B and on, on the um, CD. It was just all one album, but I could they were easily discernible. So it's just it's interesting to me that they uh, that they did specifically create two sides to this album. Agreed. And, you know, I mean, I've I've always kind of assumed, based on nothing, but always kind of assumed that they, musically, they were reared on music that had a, a, a designated side one, mm-hmm. designated side two. Yeah. And so that is the format that they were most comfortable in. So I don't know, whatever. Um, yeah. To move right along into the, the the next item on sort of the agenda here, we've got Monty got a raw deal. This is the kickoff for side two, the ride side. Tom, show me what you got. Not much. Um, it's I wrote down this is the closest to Pearl Jam that REM seems to get. It's Ooh. it's a little more of a it's it's not as slow and, and dour as, as Drive was to kick off side one. Um, uh, it it has I didn't write honestly did not write a lot down about this one. Um, that's okay. Maybe I can. Yeah. So maybe maybe as you talk, I'll I'll think things. Sure. This song is. I I try not to do this unless I'm just not glomming onto a song. I usually try not to consult like the encyclopedia. You know, like the official mm-hmm. yeah. designated meaning. But I. I what I originally interpreted the song as meaning and what it in fact is, they're not that different from each other. Mm-hmm. It, there's just a framing device that I wasn't sensitive to, that's all. But inherently, this is a song about the dichotomy between film as opposed to real life. So the subject that Michael Stipe wanted to use for this song is a film actor by the name of Montgomery Clift. And 
He starred in The Misfits, From Here to Eternity, and A Place in the Sun. Probably other stuff, too, but those seem to be his big three credits. Mm-hmm. And there's an argument that Stipe maybe relates to Clift on a personal level, inasmuch as Stipe always held his own celebrity somewhat at arm's length, and certainly Montgomery Clift did the same thing. And I guess to be fair to everybody involved, this was a sort of 90s chic type of attitude, as this was the era in which a bunch of bands who, to be just bluntly honest about it, a bunch of bands who never really dreamed of or expected to become rock stars suddenly, in fact, became rock stars. And so Stipe's allergy to celebrity and fame and the like is, oddly enough, kind of of a piece with the grunge bands that were tearing up the top 40 at the time. And it's kind of weird that his personal attitudes towards his own celebrity dovetailed so nicely with his peers. You know, it, this, it was done in a way that you really... The timing can only be a coincidence, I would imagine. So, mm-hmm. anyway, there you have it. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm looking at Montgomery Cliff's... Yeah, Montgomery Cliff died um, at the age of 45, so he died young. He died like a car accident. Um, and I think... And, and just kind of skimming his Wikipedia page, I think, I think you're right here. It does have the sort of question of one's own celebrity and uh in a way that other people adam duritz yes would handle with way less subtlety and this is saying this is coming from somebody who likes the counting crows um you know the, well it's okay to be honest though <laughs> yeah the struggle with the struggle the struggle with one's own fame and and that manifests itself, yeah. And it, but now that you say that, I understand the song a, a lot more. Um, I also was wondering if this is also Stipe uh, saying something about the attention paid to uh, his sexuality as well, possibly, or maybe I'm just kind of drawing conclusions where there aren't conclusions because he's never been, he has never been somebody who is covert about it. He's never been somebody, but his, I think the statements I've read about his sexuality were basically like what you couldn't figure it out. Like he just is like <laughs> he's like I was wearing eyeliner back in 1983. This sort of thing, like you know, do you really need me to hold a press conference to come out, or I'm, I'm here, it's me, and that's sort of same way that that's become that was very rare. Yes. For that time now is a little more commonplace where the fact that an actor or an actress or a singer's gay is no big deal. It's just like, you know, um, uh, like, uh, like somebody getting outed and they're just kind of like, yeah, I'm gay. I'm in, you know, I'm in a really nice relationship, you know, whatever. And people are like, oh, and there are those people and there are still people in our population who are like scandalized by that. But Stipe was never never either way about it. He was just kind of like, you know, this is me. Um, the lyrics, some of his lyrics were always a little bit ambiguous in terms of specific gender reference. And I was just wondering if that's, if that's part of it as well. Um, cause Cliff's love life was, um, he was bisexual yeah. in, in an, in an era where that was not accepted. At yeah. All. But well, I don't get a... the sense that he's like rock Hudson in that regard though. Right. Well, 
I didn't really pay a whole lot of attention to REM apart from their music. I no. didn't really pay a whole lot of, att- uh, of attention to them like as people. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a lot of that goings on with, you know, Stipe, is he this or is he that? You know, a lot of that kind of went right by me when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. The first time, and this is sort of going, it's a tangent, but it's not entirely off topic. Mm-hmm. The first time I really had a reason to kind of say, what the fuck did I just hear? It was on REM's album, Up. Mm-hmm. Which I like, but I don't really consider that to be part of my crucial like REM oeuvre. Yeah. And there's a song on there. Um, shit. Now I'm. No, I think it's called Diminished. Okay. And if you just if you just listen to it, I mean, it's manifestly the narrator of the song got dumped. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, put a pencil to it, but. When you actually start analyzing the lyrics and in terms of intent and whatnot, somebody in this equation has got to be gay. There's just no way around. Yeah, yeah. And so it's really it's I don't want to get too far into the song in terms of its subject matter, but I don't know as we'll ever talk about up anyway. So here we are. It's basically sort of a love triangle between the narrator of ambiguous gender. Mm hmm. Uh, the man who rejected him and the woman he's taken up with. Mm-hmm. And the only way that the the lyrics really fit together is if somebody in this equation is gay. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if, if he's being rejected by, if the narrator is being rejected by a woman and he's taken up with a, and she is taken up with another woman, she's gay. If the narrator has been rejected by a man who's taken up with a woman, well, I mean, I mean, there's a, there, are, there are only just so many, so many different ways that you can really filter all of this. And when I really started thinking about it, I was like, you know, Stipe really does kind of have that look about him. You know, I mean, it wouldn't shock me to find out that, you know what, maybe he's gay. Maybe he plays both sides. I don't really. And then, of course, he actually did come right out and say, I guess, because some people need to be told. Yeah, he didn't really he didn't really define it in a handy dandy. Easy to package term. Yeah. The way he categorized it was, look, I mean, to say that it's just this or it's just that or it's something else, it's kind of unfair. I'm just an equal opportunity pervert. And I thought that's who this guy is. It sounds like something he would actually say. R.E.M.'s personal lives never really seemed to um, be something that I ever really paid attention to either unless it was right around – I think the only time I really ever knew anything was going on personally with any member of REM was during the Monster Tour where every time you turn around, somebody was sick or hospitalized or whatever. But that's a little different. That is is unforeseen circumstances. Michael Stipe is not Kurt Cobain. No. Um, And I was trying to find a contemporary example where people would look at Kurt Cobain and they would look at Nirvana and they would look at Nirvana's lyrics and they would look for everything that was Kurt – and um, and uh, so it's not as it's not as overt as it was. Um, but yeah, um, yeah, that's pretty much yeah, what I got from my yeah, and, and, and I don't I didn't have that much else uh, uh, about it either. Um, and we can we can get, we can go on to the next track if you if you like. Sure thing. Next up is Ignore Land.
Now, who went first just a second ago? Was that me or was that you? I think it was me. Okay, so, all right. Well, for Ignoreland, I've got, I got a little bit to say, and hope. I, I mean, I'm not sure how much you've got, but I've got a, a fair amount here. But just to kind of dive into it, in case it wasn't obvious, Ignoreland is a political song, and normally I'm not really into those, but. There are two things about Ignoreland that I really dig. First, I'm just going to put it out there. Stipe has a fucking point, all right? Now, I don't usually want to get too political on this show, but then I'm not the one bringing it up. Stipe is, so take it up with him. And in, I guess in relation to his point, the best you can say about Reaganomics and trickle-down theory is it's unproven. But... I guess it, it, if you want to look at it in perhaps more idealistic terms, basically the entire theory of supply-side economics is that the 1% will give everybody else scraps. Now, irrespective of whether or not that's even true, is that really the economic system to which we should aspire? Mm -hmm. Second, Stipe acknowledges that he's lashing out. He's not actually being productive. And... Yeah. Most of all, he could be wrong on all of this, because the final verse starts up with, if they weren't there, we would have created them. Maybe it's true, but I'm resentful all the same. Someone's got to take the blame. I know that this is vitriol. No solution, spleen venom. But I feel better having screamed, don't you? And so in Stipe's mind, it's not about making a difference, or for that matter, even necessarily being right. He's just blowing off steam in this song, and he freely admits that that's all he's up to here and that's one of the reasons why he's not being preachy he's not being didactic he's he's just telling you what he thinks while acknowledging number one i'm not accomplishing anything and number two i may not actually be right and it 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 works for me on that level not to speak of the fact that this is one of the few rocking songs on the album overall i just dig it yeah it's very reminiscent of some of their older stuff and uh, it's the lyrics are very punk in a way. Yes. In, in that, in that, not in the Green Day sort of punk way, but in the or in the later Green Day way, or the the Clash or Sex Pistols sort of. You know, we are really just kind of screaming and inventing. Uh, it's a very Gen X uh, set of lyrics. You know, the the Douglas Copeland pointing out all the the shit that is wrong with with the country um it's it is a direct protest against um what was then the very this was recorded in 92 right right so i'm guessing so, no so the, yeah no yeah 92 you're right sorry it was, re- it was released in 93 but it was recorded in 92 so you're talking about the very tail end of the reagan bush years so he's reflect, and he is reflect. He 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 specifically references the years because he says um, he references 1979, and then um, then he gets all the way up to 1982. So he's talking about the that era, and he's, it's a direct criticism, a direct attack on you know on those ideas. Um, but at the same time, he's also taking a he's also taking a swipe at our culture too. Mm-hmm. The, the way the way we just kind of take what's fed to us you know like by is there's a line um the information nation took their clues from all the soundbite gluttons you know the the idea that we're complicit we're complicit in this 
you know, and and that it goes. It's almost like he's saying it goes both ways. You know, we can protest the government, and, and but I do like at the end that he's saying, you know, I'm just kind of yelling here. I'm 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 frustrated, but you know, he says I'm resent. You said like you said, I, I might be wrong, but I feel better having screamed, don't you? Um, you know that that angle about the culture. You know that on yeah. that honestly had not occurred to me, but that kind of strikes me as a little bit of a counterpoint then mm-hmm. to the Don Henley song "Dirty Laundry." Which is all about excoriating, basically, I guess, news media on television. Mm -hmm. And so, or I guess television news. And so, this actually kind of points the finger right back at the people watching it. It's not just that they're the ones at fault. You are, too, for lapping it up. So well, that's, yeah. this is sort of a counterpoint to that. I hadn't really it, thought about that till now. It's probably the reason it's called Ignoreland. It's not, you know... Um, I mean, he uh, and so if you're if you're going from the top down, the tr- the trickle down economic theory is, you know, I think it's a really good analysis of what you were. I think you had a you were spot on about it at least from from where I'm coming from, and it essentially does ignore the people at the bottom, um, and 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 that is one of the things that that you know the, the one of the biggest criticisms of the Reagan administration socially is how they ignored a lot of things. Um, from and I'm not I don't want to get too political, but one of the criticisms you read is how they ignored a lot of a lot of the poorer, um, you know, I don't want to say lower classes, but you know, uh, Mondale campaigned on that. Yeah, yeah, a my, minority populations, um, you know, the, the AIDS crisis and things like that, but from the ground up. There's this this thing in our culture where people don't want to pay attention to the news, so it depresses them. So ignorance is bliss, and we ignore, you know, mm. we ignore what's going on. We ignore, um, we ignore the war. We ignore, we ignore the the violence we see on the news in favor of whatever shit is airing on television. So, you know, and, and so there's, um, I think that's why I said, I think he's making, I think he's attacking more than one, uh, one body here. Uh, I got uh, from just doing a little bit of, I, I had to look up the lyrics just, I wanted to, cause I wanted to make sure I was exact with my look at the lyrics. Mm-hmm. Cause a song like this does depend on its lyrics. Yes. Um, so I looked them up and then I looked up a little bit about the song and, and apparently this is one they were never totally satisfied with and they actually never played in concert until their farewell tour. Oh. Um, yeah. So which again, trivia that makes no bearing on the song whatsoever. Um, I've seen this side so far and become it's this side of the album. It's still dark, but it's, it's picking up a little. Yeah, and they're branching out toward other things, um, while expressing their frustrations with, uh, with or their or their own attitude and personal. Uh, he's expressing, you know, him, himself. I don't find Michael Stipe is not somebody who's shied away from politics. No, or expressing his political views. Um, this, I think, it was the. It was either when they won the VMA for Losing My Religion or when they won the VMA for uh, Everybody Hurts, where he gave the ever-famous acceptance speech where he was wearing a different T-shirt with some saying on it every time, mm-hmm. like he's Styles and Teen Wolf or something. Um, <laughs> I have a high threshold 
for musicians, especially getting political because music is an expression of one's thoughts. You can certainly put people have been putting politics into their music for centuries. So it's an accepted part of it. And when a musician or a pop star speaks out against something, I have a high tolerance for it because I always ask myself this one question. Is this more annoying than Bono? (laughs) Not here. (laughs) Am I wrong? (laughs) Well, I mean, look, it's the way I look at it is maybe I'm just barking up the wrong tree here. I'm willing to consider that. But the the way – it's kind of asking a bit much for someone to not have an opinion yeah. or perhaps to not express that opinion in, you know, in, uh, in one sense. But the other way of looking at it is music is, whether anyone likes it or not, commodity. You know, now people can rail against that as much as they like, but there is a reality here that needs to be accepted. And the part about it that kind of bugs me is when an artist will go so far as to, and I don't care who it is, but they'll go so far as to actually endorse a candidate. And I remember that there was uh, a Rock the Vote movement underway in 1992 as part of the presidential election. Yeah, MTV spearheaded it in a big way. Yeah. And and it, it... what I originally interpreted from the ad campaign when it first started up is that you need to register to vote. You need to go out there and then vote for somebody, right? Yeah. Don't stay home. This is the point. Don't Mm -hmm. stay home. And so that was the original tone and intent of rock the vote, at least when it started, but there came up and damned if I could tell you when shit, I'm surprised I even remember it, but there came a point when it kind of shifted a little and it stopped being about get out and vote and it started becoming get out and vote for Bill Clinton and I've kind of got problems with that because these these artists are not speaking in a vacuum they're yeah they're being propped up and it, in in effect kind of sponsored by these giant media conglomerates I know that I don't think have any business I, I want to be careful I would say it. I don't think they there needs to be a limit honestly in terms of how much Viacom is allowed to influence policy. That's just the way I look at it. And it's wrongheaded to use these guys sort of as props so that now you get to advance whatever your fucking agenda is. Okay. I mean, I don't mind, you know, just to pick somebody who was big in 1992, Chris Cornell, he can vote for Mm -hmm. whoever the fuck he wants. I honestly don't care. But when Viacom starts using him and others as pawns so that they can get what they want and they're doing it, under this kind of bullshit guise of populism, I've I've just got serious fucking moral and philosophical and ethical problems with that. I just I do. I am um, I'm trying to remember back to to the 1992 campaign because I wasn't old, old enough to vote yet anyway, and um, I followed it really closely. Yeah, I followed it. I followed it pretty closely because it was it was one of the it was unique. Uh, because of Ross Perot and because of the sort of, it really was the end of an era. Um, and 97, 96 campaign was, I voted in that election, but like the Clinton Dole thing was, it was a boring. Um, yeah, no one gave a shit. As yeah, nobody really gave a shit. Um, but 
the thing I remember too is it's part of it is is what you were just talking about. Part of it also was that George H. W. Bush either missed his chance in trying to get the youth vote or just didn't give a shit about the youth vote. And the Clinton campaign very shrewdly picked up on that. So they they co-opted I think part of it you could say that there was there was it rock the vote in its pure form is exactly what I think anybody across any political spectrum would say. Yeah, you need to go out and vote. You need to be informed. You need to be an informed voter and go out and you need to participate in government because that is what is at the heart of of a democracy. Mm. But I think at one point the Clinton campaign saw this rock the vote thing. They saw that the other side was not. Um, maybe Perot was getting in there a little bit, but Ross Perot, I, I still can't ra- completely wrap my head around who was actually uh, a fan of his. Um, but if we're looking Clinton Bush, they looked at this youth vote and they saw that it was it was skewing Democratic, and they saw an opening and they went for it. And I think in a in a big way, it was a little it was a mixture of a few things um, among them that the Clinton campaign was like, we can take advantage of this because um, because the you listen to interviews with people like oh Tabitha Soren or whoever was you know big at MTV at the time, they would say that their their aim was to just do the the objective thing and not campaign outright for Clinton. And Clinton wanted to give them credit where they didn't think they needed to be given credit for electing Clinton. So it's, it's messy. Yeah. Which politics is. So, well, yeah. And you know what? I mean, the 1992 election, I swear, if it wasn't such a hot potato, I, somebody could make that into an amazing podcast episode. Mm-hmm. But uh, I don't know if we need to get too far into that. But that's yeah. basically what I've got for Ignoreland. Yeah. You got any parting shots or anything to toss in? No, I basically, I basically uh, said what I needed to say, and we can get because um, then we slow way down. Yeah, <laughs> we slow down in time for Star Me Kitten. got the floor on this one uh this is another one where i actually had to look up the lyrics because i was um i was listening to this a couple times i was like what is this song about um the star in star me kitten is fuck yeah because the last and and it's it's this this is just about a fucked up relationship or something it is it is um it's it's the lyrics, not the tune, but the lyrics are very Liz Fair. Yes, Liz they're very Exile and Guyville in that sense. And there's um, 
the last verse is last verse or so is you me we used to be on fire if keys are all that stand between can i throw in the ring no gasoline just fuck me kitten you are wild and i'm in your possession nothing's free so fuck me kitten i'm in your possession so fuck me kitten but it's done really quietly and slowly and it's not you could you could put you could put an electric guitar you could put a fast tempo over these lyrics and it'd be you could use these lyrics with a fast pace, faster paced song with a with an electric guitar or something. Yes, but they don't do that. But yeah, it's like it's a really fucked up relationship or something or two people who hate each other but they're there for the sex or or, or something of that nature that I would have never gotten at fifteen by the way. Yeah, no. It, this is probably the most bitter breakup song that I've ever heard. Yeah. It, it almost makes me think, you know, what if Sid and Nancy had split up like a year before? Uh-huh. I could picture, not necessarily like the instrumentation of it, but I could picture Sid Vicious writing lyrics like this. Mm-hmm. You know, and, you know, the hell of it is, like you were saying, I didn't really understand that at first. And what I tended to focus on was more, I guess, like the schmaltzy sort of downbeat aspect the downbeat tempo and those qualities of the song and didn't really pay a whole lot of attention to the lyrics now yeah i was probably somewhere in my early 20s before i really listened and in my defense because i know what you're thinking in my defense stipe sings in a pretty low register yeah for a lot of the song and he kind of mumbles out the lyrics yeah so you kind of need to be a little bit of a musical archaeologist to figure out just what the fuck he's even saying i had to look them up yeah I couldn't understand what the fuck he was saying through the whole song. I'm sorry. And I meant like literally could not understand him. Yeah. And and that's that's why I said I had to look them up. And I so I totally agree with you. <laughs> yeah. And, and then when you do figure it out, holy shit. It's so good. The lyrics of this song are so good. <laughs> and like the thing was, I mean, I've had, you know, I'm not I don't mean this as a good thing and I don't mean it as a bad thing. It's just it's fucking true. My teenage years and God knows my 20s. They were what they were, you know, and mm-hmm. so I never had a, a relationship and God knows a breakup quite like this one. But I was cognizant of the possibility, you know, that, you know, yeah. I was in a certain type of headspace where, like I say, I mean, I got out of this huge relationship when I was about 20. And so it's like, you know, where the fuck do you go? And so. I went through a phase, and this was after the Portland girl, I went through a phase where, you know, it truly was just kind of a physical thing because I thought, well, if this is what's on the other side, you know, this kind of just uh, pain and almost hatred is what's, if if those are the stakes that I'm playing for, then I don't think I want any part of this, mm-hmm. you know? And so I basically what I did was I kind of fell ass backwards into a, a and I'm using this in, in, in kind of quotation marks, a relationship that, I mean, we kind of, it was like more than friends, but it was, or rather it was kind of friends, but we were more than just fuck buddies. But it was this, I don't know. It, it was, it was a fucking mess. And the fact is I actually kind of liked it. I enjoyed it at the time because this was a relationship. It was stable. It was dependable. It would be there for me. But there were no promises to it. You know, there was no there was no guarantee that there's going to be a tomorrow with this. You know, it's a good time while it lasts and you can kind of enjoy 
I guess, some of the perks of being in a relationship without really having to commit. And that was exactly where my head was at when I was about 21, 22 and through there. And I didn't. And so, like I say, I mean, this isn't a song that I can directly relate to on like a literal personal level. Yeah. But I, I, I had those moments where, you know, it really kind of, it were, it was sort of all about the sex, you know? And Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't think that's a valid foundation for a like a real relationship with somebody. I because yeah. how could it be? Yeah. Because it's inherently selfish to start with, and so if that's the basis where you you start, I have no idea what's in your future. I'm just pretty sure it's not going to be very good. Mm-hmm. And the real question is, do you really want that relationship to work out? Because what does working out look like? You know, for for something like that. But when I finally did start paying attention to the lyrics, and this is the point, when I finally did start paying attention to the lyrics, it's like, it's on the one hand, you don't relate to this as such. But at the same time, there is a sort of a personal element that there, but for the grace of God, it could have been me. (laughs) Yeah. So anyway, you know, I'm looking at these lyrics, like uh, the second verse of, uh, this love is tired of changed locks. Have I misplaced you? Have we lost our minds? Will this ever? Will this never end? It could depend on your take. I mean, it doesn't get much better than that. Yeah, I can't really, and I really can't add too much more to what you said, aside from what I've already said about how this is just—it's bitter and very raw. Um, the kind of lyrics that you would hear, actually, it's but it's not whiny. No, because a lot of what would be categorized as emo in the in the uh, the 2000s would be more whiny than this even if they were trying to be raw and bitter and upset um and uh yeah that's so i but it is one of those cases where i really really like the lyrics to the song yet this the, the yet the tune and the way he's singing it is um it's slightly indecipherable but it does make you think yeah <laughs> so and my, I guess, at least my parting comment for Starmy Kitten is this is one of those songs that kind of triggers musical amnesia, at least for me. Mm-hmm. And hopefully now I've fixed this for good. But every time this comes up when I've got my iPod on shuffle or something like that, and it's played out of context with this album, every single time, I'm not exaggerating, every fucking time. What I always think is, oh, Starmy Kitten. Hey, I love Monster. That's a great album. And this is a good song from Monster. And it's not a Monster. But it's, in a weird kind of way, this is it. This is a good fit for Automatic for the People. Don't get me mm-hmm. wrong. But I think it could just as easily have been on Monster without mm-hmm. missing a beat. And, you know, maybe we'll get more into Monster another time. But, yeah. you know, every time I hear the song or any time the subject of it comes up or I think about it or something, it's like, I love Monster. And I, I don't have a defense for that other than to say I'm an idiot. So yeah. here we are. So right. do you have anything else you want to you want to toss in or do or have you said I your bit? Do not. Let's let's move on to easily the uh, the other big song from this uh, this album. That is Man on the Moon. Alright, uh, Tom, this one, this song, 
It's all you. <laughs> this is the one I skip because I heard it too many times on the radio. I, I, it's, it's the mysterious ways that don't speak. Um, it's, it's not a bad song. It's a good pop song. The melody is really good. I like the low vocal layering, especially in the chorus. Mm-hmm. Um, yet, uh, it's about Andy Kaufman, or it makes several references to Andy Kaufman, who had recently died, I believe. No, he died like ten years earlier. No, he does. See, I'm not. And but the thing is, and it and then it became the title and the theme song for um, a 1999 biopic of of Andy Kaufman starring Jim Carrey. That is so pretentious; it's virtually unwatchable. Um, I was okay. Granted, I was never that big of an Andy Kaufman fan. Mm-hmm. There are some things he did that I found funny, and then there are things he did that I was just kind of like, "This isn't funny," but everybody regards you as a genius, so they think it's funny. Funny, you know. I just, mm-hmm. you know. But then again, my entrance into comedy and and the stuff that I said when I think of comedic genius of the era of, of Andy Kaufman, I go to more along the lines of somebody like George Carlin or Richard Pryor. So that's ah. where I'm coming in front of comedy. My entrance into stand-up comedy, to really like hardcore stand-up comedy as opposed to like, you know, your Jerry Seinfeld and your, um, you know, the, the kind of lighter touch stuff was, of all things, the Dennis Leary album, No Cure for Cancer. But just like Green Day led me to The Clash, Dennis Leary led me to the person he ripped off. Um, you know, I, I, I'm going to be the controversial guy in the room and say, you know, I think I like Dennis Leary better. I mean, he may have stolen his act, but he mm-hmm. did it better. I, 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 uh, I actually like them both, to be honest with you. Um, Leary's later stuff, we'll get back to the song in a second. Leary's later stuff, I'm not a big fan of, but I still do love No Cure for Cancer. Yes. Uh, but then I got into Carlin, and I got into Pryor, and I got into, um, you know... Uh, of the really kind of like biting skating sort of of stand-up um Kaufman was just not I, like I said there were some bits that Kaufman used to do that I was like oh that's really funny and then there was some stuff where I'm like I don't think this is as funny as you think it's funny like you know you're laughing it, like you're laughing at your own joke man like you know and and here it's um it's this song that that they played the crap out of the song yes and and I I got it only and it only hit number thirty. Yeah, that's weird, but, isn't it? Which is weird to me. But it, they play the shit out of it, and um, I don't even remember the video very much. But it's like him walking against the western backdrop or whatever. Um, but it, and I guess there's all the randomness in the lyrics acknowledges the randomness that's Andy Kaufman. But I'm just like, all right, I can I'll skip the I will skip the song because the next song's nice one. That's one of my favorite songs. In the album. So. That's also the other thing, but you know, but I mean, I acknowledge it as a pretty well-crafted pop song. There are, um, there's a really good melody musically. It's really good. There. It's just been, for my money, it's just been done to death. I've heard yeah. it too fucking many times. And this is not to speak of the fact that whenever you hear something a bunch, a bunch, a bunch, a bunch of times, you start. I don't, like I don't know about you, but I kind of start picking it apart. And I start thinking, mm-hmm. this isn't so fucking good. Yeah. And that you start seeing flaws where perhaps there are none. And that is more or less where I am with Man on the Moon, where maybe I'm paying a little bit too much attention now to the lyrics. And it's like, I don't, 
think those are especially great lyrics. That's just me. But I do, I, I will like half-ass justify, I won't listen to it, but I will half-ass justify it in that Man on the Moon, it, it appears on the same album as a song about Montgomery Clift. Mm-hmm. And so there's a little bit of a celebrity connection there. But there's also the angle that Andy Kaufman was dead, and this is a song. This is an album that's very much about mortality as sort of an abstract concept, and so it does fit, at least in that sense. Plus, it breaks up, you know, from just like a tempo standpoint, it does kind of break up some of the monotony that we've had to put up with through a decent bit of this album. It's yeah. just, I'm to the point where if I never hear this song again from now to the day I die, I'll find a way to live with it. You know, yeah. I mean, I'm kind of done with this song. That And that I don't mean this to be mean or dismissive. That truly is the most I have to say about it. Yeah, no, and and just to add to that, to 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 pile onto the Montgomery Cliff thing, um, Andy Kaufman is under the category for many people as the quote misunderstood genius. Mm-hmm. You know that he gets that label a lot, and there have been rumors for many many years now that he faked his death, and so. You know, and I and this this does kind of skirt that, and I totally see how it fits in a little bit more thematically. But I'm with you, man. It's just I don't even listen to it when it comes on the radio unless I have to. Yeah. You know, and so. that's yeah, and not to be disrespectful, but yeah, you know, no, sometimes it, you just don't have as much to say about something, you know. So well, like I, like I said, I can listen to Octung Baby is my favorite U2 album. Uh, for for several reasons, but I still will skip over mysterious ways because that gets played on the radio all, even more than one, which got played to death. Mysterious ways is still played on the radio. It's like, like Jack even today, and Diane. it's not like much has changed. It's still oh, yeah. played a lot. It, it's the it's the Jack and Diane of that album. It's like totally just it's always on the fucking radio. So, and I just skip over it. So I. You and I are the same. So let's let's move on because we got two more songs. Yes, we do. And what's the next one? Night Swimming. Night Swimming deserves a quiet night. All right, so who went first on the last one? I think I did. Okay. This is a song that's got a very clear meaning to me. I, I, and I sort of touched on this a little bit earlier, that there were two songs on Automatic for the People that just captivated my brother's attention. One of them was Drive. Well, this was the other one. My brother used to drive all of us to school once he got his license, and for some reason, this was the song from the album. He liked Drive, but this was the song from the album that really hit him. Now, then again... My brother was always a lot more sentimental than I am, so there's that. The song itself is basically about... It's not really about being young as such. It's about the nostalgia of being young and doing stupid, reckless things, going skinny-dipping and all of that, which is kind of odd to think that, you know, I mean, I've only gone skinny-dipping once, but that's not really the point. The point is that it's kind of a romantic a romanticization, if that's even a word, of youth and being young, and I guess just the nostalgia of it all, the balls of being like 18, 19, 20 years old, and mm-hmm. I, it's one of those things that, I guess from a thematic standpoint, I didn't really relate to all that much when I was 12 years old, because how could you? 
Yeah. But when you get to be about 22, 23, and then God knows as you get older, you know, it's one of those things when, you know, you start looking back at some of the crazy, reckless shit that you did in high school and somewhat in college. And it's the kind of thing that if you were to try doing this as an adult, I mean, you're well within your rights to get arrested, you know? But for some reason, when teenagers do it, I at least have an attitude of, you know, boys will be boys, just look the other way kind of a thing. And that is kind of what the song, I guess, means to me, that you're in this time and in this place when you can, at least in the pre-internet world, you could afford to do something that these days might actually ruin your life, but at least back then, there's really not... There's less public humiliation whenever you do something just completely insane, idiotic, and totally typical teenager, you know? So, And skinny dipping has an innocence about it that or has a less danger to it than say I don't know drag racing yeah or something like you know um, this isn't dead man's curve or leader of the pack or like and um, there's the lyrics and the themes of this are very Brian Wilson um, and I can't imagine that's not on purpose in some way, or maybe there was a little bit of it. There's, it's not a Beach Boys song at all. I'm not going to say that, but there's, there's sort of that theme of that. That is that. Um, no, but they, they, they are big innocence. Beach Boys fans. That needs yeah. to be said. And that is, you're right. It's, it's not. It's about innocence, but it's about in, in being, being 30, being in your 20s, being an adult, and taking a look back on um, that age and. Uh, months ago, I was I was going through some old stuff because I was you were know, cleaning, and I came across like old letters that my friend wrote me, and I texted her. I'm like, you should see these, and she was so I I sent her a text, and she just wrote back, oh my god, we were such teenagers. That's I think the feeling that he's getting, that he's starting expressing, like you know, wow, the the, the stuff I did, and um, and it's wistful. Um, it's this. This song is beautiful, um, and I'm I'm biased because I played the piano for so many years. I never learned how to play this song, and I kicked myself for it. Um, I one day maybe I'll set the keyboard up and I'll uh, try to figure it out by downloading guitar tabs or whatever whatever I can find online. Um, it really it feels like a late summer night. the The piano is gorgeous. The strings are great, and this oboe comes in at the end, and it's 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 gorgeous and. Yeah. Um, and and then the 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 mat the lyrics match the tone, mm-hmm. um, and on another earth where my life is just basically one John Hughes movie after another, I play <laughs> this and a girl hears it and she falls in love with me. Um, that never happened, <laughs> but but it is it's it's a beautiful it's one of the most beautiful songs I've I've ever heard and and I I, I love it and I love it for its place in this album because it. Um, the album ends on a sorry. The album begins on a very dour note and a very like you know, and it and it will end with an uplift. And and this is this is getting us there. It's it's um, but it's it's a very quiet. Um and uh, yeah, I just I, I I can't say anything more than just kind of gush over how much I love the song and how how just pretty I think it is. Yeah. Well. The I don't I, I'm not sure if you are aware of this, but Mike Mills is the one who plays the piano in this song, mm-hmm. and he's claimed at various times that this piano bit 
riff, whatever you want to call it, it was inspired. It was not only inspired by the song Layla by Derek and the Dominoes. This is the same piano as was used on Layla. I love the piano part of Layla. That always killed me when they would play the unplugged version of Layla because it doesn't have that great piano piece in it. Um, both in and out of Scorsese movies. Uh, but that's really cool. I did not know that. Yeah, and it, this is it's unknown and maybe unknowable, but one of the reasons why I tend to believe it is pianos, and I'm sure you probably know this, but... Uh, Pianos are a lot like guitars in that there are individuals. I mean, you can have a line of models of pianos and guitars yeah. and all these other things. But the reality is, it doesn't matter that they came off the same assembly line. Every guitar sounds different. Even if yeah. it's the same Gibson Les Paul that was, or rather a Gibson Les Paul that was manufactured alongside some other Gibson Les Paul, they don't have the same tone as one another. They, they can play the same notes. They don't necessarily sound the same. And this sounds like the same piano in Layla to me. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't yeah, you're right. I'll have to I'll have to do I'll have to listen to those songs back to back and, and, and see if see if I see if I can hear it. Yeah, well please do. And cool, if, yeah. if, if you have a different opinion, actually I would like to I would like to know. But uh that really is is about all I've got for night swimming. It, it's one of those songs that I kinda find it to be a little bit of a musical bore, but the lyrics kinda make up for it. But you know, what can you do? It, what what it does is um, piano is not something that was used in a lot of rock at this point. No. Um, the only per, the only two people you could, I could think of who were using all right three people sorry uh, who I could think of at this time who were who were uh, who were charting in a very big way that were using piano in rock. Uh, you have Billy Joel and Elton John mm-hmm. who were still kicking around. Uh, I think River of Dreams is around this time, and Elton John's still. Elton John's kind of making his 90s comeback and then Tori Amos was coming along at this time and she did things with the piano that I hadn't really heard anybody do um, Billy Joel in one of the liner notes of his albums talks about uh, the song Captain Jack and how he talks about how he made it sound made sure people knew the piano at that point was a percussion instrument because there's a lot of piano based songs that are very treacly yeah. And this doesn't sound like that. There's some body to the piano in here, and that's why I, I, I like it so much. Even though it's a very, and it's a very simple. Um, Mike Mills says it's like a circular um, progression of the because it's basically the same thing, kind of over and over and over again. Um, and then the strings and the and like I said, the oboe. But yeah, it, it the whole package is what makes this really really good. It's not just the it's not just the piano piece. All right. Well, fair enough. We're going to wrap it up. Please do. What's next? Find the river.
I'm sorry that I've got such a crap memory here. Which of us went first before? You did. I did? Okay, so, yeah, so you're up. If night, I wrote down, this is what I wrote down verbatim in my notes. If night swimming is the middle of the night in the summer, then find the river feels like sunrise the next day. <laughs> um, it, it really, it, it, it ends this It ends this thing. Um, it has this minor key. That I, I'm not very good at picking specific keys off, like, in music. Um off by ear but it does sound very minor and then the chorus sounds major almost like there's a sh- there's a tonal shift between the chorus and the verse that goes back to the chorus it's almost like a <sighs> no Kurt Cobain said that when he wrote Smells Like Teen Spirit he was almost like trying to write the best Pixies song he could think of I because, see that <laughs> yeah because it's because the Pixies the, the the running gag about the Pixies is that the song that there's there's this quiet chorus and the quiet verse and the chorus and the verse and the chorus yeah this kind of feels like that in some regard where there's a there's the the the, the more negative tone the more the more dour tone that has permeated the whole album is in the verses but the chorus is a little more uplifting um and uh like there's a there's a slightly different chorus um I could hear Natalie Merton covering this. I, would, I don't think she ever did, but I could swear I could put this on like Tiger Lily or something, her early solo stuff, and it would fit. You know, when you say it that way, yeah, I mean, I not only could I hear it, I'd be actually interested to hear it, but I think part of what helps, and of course now I can't remember what song it is, but I remember seeing on YouTube at some point because I was looking for something else. This is months and months ago. Yeah. I found a duet with Michael Stipe and Natalie Merchant. Uh, Photograph. Photograph? Okay. It's a great song. And you know, the thing is as much as I'd like to hear Natalie Merchant sing this song, and I would, of almost equal value with that would be a duet with Natalie Merchant on this song. Yeah. You know, where one of them takes the chorus, one of them will take the verse, or vice versa, or just fucking however they, they want to do it. I, I I don't know, or maybe they harmonize on the verse, I don't know, but I would want... Have her on the song. Somehow, yeah. Them. And it... I... This is... It, it's not a... this Because I, I, in a weird kind of way, this is not, like, lyrically, like the quintessential Ma- Natalie Merchant song, at least, that no. I can think of. But on the other hand... It's like the tone of it and the mood of it. It feels like it. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, R.E.M. as a band, they're kind of famous for mixing relatively simple instrumentation with lyrics so oblique as to be indecipherable. Mm-hmm. And if there's a better way to describe Find the River, I never heard it. But yeah. <laughs> over and over, like over and above everything, I guess, to me, this is a song about, like you were saying, getting old. And it's not specifically about dying or breaking up with somebody or you're pissed off about politics or wanting to be young or anything like that. It's, it's about waking up one day and realizing you're old and wondering just what the fuck even happened? You know, how did I ever end up here? Mm -hmm. And that's a theme that hits pretty close to me, at least right now. I mean, I didn't really care very much about turning 30 
Yeah, a lot of people like freak the hell out over that, but I remember I pretty much rolled with it. So call it a, a, a delayed reaction, but maybe it's been like the past, maybe over the past year or so, I've done what most people did when they actually turned 30 and said, holy shit, the world that I was born into, grew up in, came of age in, doesn't fucking exist anymore, you know? And so to me, this song is all about, I guess, like the shock and awe of realizing you've lived possibly half of your lifetime now mm-hmm. without even really realizing it. That is what um, I turned 30. My wife was eight and a half months pregnant. So turning 30 for me will always be associated with Brett being born because Brett is almost Brett's birthday is July 21st. My birthday is June 23rd and Amanda's is July. 8th. So we have birthdays all in a row. But basically that's when I think of turning 30, I think of my son being almost being born. However, what you just described, I'm 39. I'll be in almost a year about two short, two weeks short of a year because I turned 39 two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I will be 40. That is kind of how I've been feeling here and there over the course of since about 38. Yeah. Um, when I, when I, my 20th high school reunion was um, last year, I didn't go because I was on vacation in um, Florida at the time they were having it. But I do remember having a lot of those feelings and looking back in that regard, and not with regret, but this sort of, oh, wow. So 40s kind of feeling like that. I don't think I'm going to, you know, buy a sports car or anything like that. But um, I get it. Good. This basically, <laughs> is basically what I was trying to say. I get it. <laughs> and I can empathize. <laughs> well, you know, it's just, it, it's kind of nice to know that it's not just me and i mean you know i i don't look i i don't know this to be true all right but my guess is that you know when the time comes you know i honestly don't know how your generation and mine is really how we're gonna age you know or rather Mm -hmm. how we're gonna handle aging because when i think of the fucking baby boomers and and the way that they aged, you know, uh, Don Henley actually said it best with, you know, deadhead sticker on a Cadillac. Cadillac, yeah. And you really can't improve upon that. But I mean, what is that going to look like for us? You know, because we're probably not going to know until about the time we hit our 40s or so. So we're probably a few years out still from that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, specifically like our generation, what is that going to entail? And one of the things I've always sort of worried about is that there's an argument that ours is a kind of maladjusted generation to begin with anyway. What is it going to look like whenever more and more of us start signing up like 401ks or, uh, I don't know, basically entering not quite the golden years, but you know, you're definitely now too old to have children. And so what is, what's the end of this going to be like, I guess, you know? Yeah. No, I, I understand. And, it's so weird. REM is is one of the iconic bands of the Generation X era. To use a term that some people accept and some people reject and some people seem to like. Um, 
I remember a student of mine saying something, oh, we are Generation X. And I look straight at her. I'm like, no, I'm from Generation X. You look up, do your homework and look up the term. Like one of your students said that? Yeah, like this was a few years ago. And I was like, uh, do you know what Generation X is? Like, I think she was referring it to as this sort of, oh, we're the ignored generation, blah, blah, blah. What the and, fuck are you? And I'm like, I'm like, no, look, you fucking millennial. Um, It's just... And that's the, that's the thing, though. A lot of this stuff about how we're maladjusted or whatever, you can look at the lens, you can look at the cultural lens of there was a lot of maladjustment in the face of our generation because we are the generation who is the sort of – now, granted, my parents have been together for 40 years and we never moved. But a lot – I have friends who have our parents of, of children of divorce or I was the child of – my sister and I were children of a two-parent working family. Yes. You know, like things like this that were not part of their generation in in such large numbers. You know, the baby boomers, there's a whole different dynamic that went on when they were ra- they were being raised in the way they raised us. And there are circumstances involved, and it's too long for me to get into. But the other side of it is marketing. The other side of it was – that the baby boomers were so huge that they became the focus of a lot of things. The millennials are huge as well. And they, from a very young age, were easily sold to, to the point where there are like films and, and, and books and things on this generation that define cool and everything. Generation X is kind of stuck in the middle because a lot of, from a, from a huge standpoint, and I'm starting to think it's maybe it's just being in your 20s. In a lot of regards, when we started to come of age, we rejected a lot of it or rejected in that we saw through a lot of the bullshit. Mm-hmm. And and it, it will be interesting as we get older to see like what we what we subscribe to and what we don't. And, and R.E.M. is one of those bands that really was – I hate to use the phrase the voice of a generation, but they are one of those bands that is that sort of – does sort of hold that title. Um, in some regard, or they at least spoke to a group of people who were who were of that age. And um, now that they are, and this was around the time where the first crop of Generation X kids was hitting thirty. So now they've got to see where you know they spent their twenties still in shitty jobs because the economy was shitty. You know, like all the other things that went on, and yeah, you know, we've all seen reality bites. But um, well, the the thing is, I mean, I'm kind of on the borderline. I mean, I think technically. I would call it. I didn't know this until fairly I recently, think, but I think I'm on the tail end of the generation, and you're on the cusp. Yeah, which and, which means that you could you could either be. Uh, I think depending on who you are, you could either be of either place. I think that's where the individual really can come into play. Right, and it's just like on a internal level. I always just relate. I was related more to. Because we have to use these media labels. Yeah, let's just use the media, just for simplicity's sake here. Yeah. I was kind of related more to, to Generation X, simply mm-hmm. because, you know, that was the the pop culture of my time. That's when I grew up. And that's just, that's what I know. I mean, technically, I could qualify, I think, as a millennial, assuming there's any kind of badge of honor in that. But the fact of the matter is, I don't really relate to millennials. I don't understand them. I don't know where they're coming from. You know, the things that they believe in and hold to be important are whatever. And so, you know, it's that this whole idea of, I guess, of like uh, a, a, a generational identity. I mean, on the one hand, you cannot deny, I guess, like the reality of it. 
and the truth of it. But at the same time, what I think we all need to acknowledge is, is the imperfection of it in that these lines, they may be accurate. These lines that we're drawing around all of these different age groups, there may be some accuracy to them. But at the end of the day, I mean, it's completely fucking arbitrary. You know, I mean, there's not a radical difference between me and the way that I view the world versus somebody who's 10 years older than me or someone who's to some way, uh, to some degree, like 10 years younger. I mean, I don't again, I don't completely relate to them, but they're not total strangers either. And it it's so tempting, you know, to want to say that this whole thing is kind of a media scam, which I think is if ever there was a mantra or a motto or a battle cry for Generation X, this is a media scam would have to fucking be it. Oh, yeah, it's it's a it's a um, there was an article in Newsweek back in like 1994. And one of the people they interviewed for it was oh, she was like a sex advice columnist. And I don't remember her name, but she said that M- she's Dr. like Ruth or no, no, it was a, it was a of it was she was to 20 something. Oh, um, oh, shit. It's on the tip of my tongue. Anyway, um, she they asked each person they interviewed because they interviewed several people, you know, of, of, in their twenties, um, generation X is, and she just said a marketing term. <laughs> and I was like, and I'm like, you know, if you think about it, that's perfect. Cause a lot of the generational labels are things that are, um, created in a sense or evolve in a sense because somebody's trying to sell you something pretty much. And you're trying to some a company, whether it be um, whether it be Coca Cola or um, Apple, is trying to get you to buy their products. So they're going to take your information, your demographic makeup, and put you in a box. And it and if you can, you know, and and then and then what happens is that the media. And I'm talking about, and I hate to use the phrase mainstream media because it's just stupid ass sounding phrase. But the 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 general media, the the ones that are not specific to like you know the not like the academic academics or anything like that, they like to put things in the simplest possible terms. Yes. And the most convenient definitions. You know, they see how they want see us how they want to see us as a brain, as an athlete. <laughs> yeah, pretty much, <laughs> dear Mister. But that's what they do. So, so they like to put things in very simple boxes. They do this with music. They will lead you to believe that like REM had like three songs, you know, or that like, or they'll boil down one band to one song or two songs or something like that. And sometimes one band was a one-hit wonder. You know, I don't think I don't know if Tony Basil any recorded anything <laughs> other than Mickey. But <laughs> but you know, there certainly was more music to REM than, you know, a handful of songs between 1990 and 1995. And, and I think most of the people know it. And, um, you know, in the same way that John Mellencamp recorded more than just Jack and Diane and stuff like that, but they, they love to boil down things to this thing that fits in this little segment on the today show. Right. Because the audience that watches the today show are not people you should trust 
with policy and or great economic decisions. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. That's so snooty to say, but I just I abhor morning news shows uh, because they're just so, they're so fucking vacuous. They're, they, they are. They're vapid. They're, they're dumbed down. Everything, anything that has depth to it, like, will be dumbed down. And this idea, and that's what happens with these generational labels. It's the lowest common denominator approach. They need to they need to label something so that it'll fit into a box so they can sell you something, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm not trying to f- sound like some sort of like raving nut job, you know, damn the man type of person, but well, it does there is get, some truth to it. It needs yeah, to be said. Yeah, but it gets fresh. I am tired of millennials because I am. I, but I don't think I'm tired of the people. I am tired of the stories about millennials. I'm tired of the stories about how this is trendy among millennials or whatever because they are just ubiquitous. Yeah. And I think I think that generation is even tired of itself or tired of all the things that are being reported about it, itself. Well, I but guess Generation I'll... X never had that. <laughs> they no. had look at how fucked up this generation is and look how much they suck. So <laughs> Well, the I'm willing to look the other way on a lot of things when it comes to millennials. You know, like their generation. I'll I'll say this for them. You know, I mean, yeah, they can be whiny, they can be bratty, and all the uh, all this other stuff. Mm-hmm. But where I choose to cut them some slack is they were basically told their entire lives, "You've got to go to college, or you won't. You're not going to make it." It's yeah. it's as simple as that. They believed that. And they went to college, they took on all of this debt, and now they still can't get a job. And they feel betrayed, they feel lied to, everything under the sun. And the fact is, I mean, to me, anytime somebody says this is the secret to life, I tend to get a little bit suspicious. (laughs) But I can't really fault somebody who, in good faith, did what they were told to do by somebody who sounded like he knew what he was talking about. Only to find out that, you know what, reality, what they were telling you was good, might have been good advice, uh, like 10, 15, 20 years ago. It doesn't really play now. Well, and they were, and they were, and you feel, they feel scammed because they were being, they had their ass kissed. You know, when you have stories from back in the, in the early part of the, of the, of the millennium from, from around the time where they were younger and they were they were quoted as being the buying power of the household that they had the disposable income and they were the trend, trend makers and they decided what was cool their ass was being kissed from a much younger age than like mine ever was and like you know like i said at the, toward the beginning of the episode as, as we wrap up here um rem pearl jam nirvana these were all bands that I always loved listening to, and honestly, they felt like they were for a slightly older audience than I was because yes. it wasn't until like the Lollapalooza tours rolled around and, and they went really, really big that somebody my age at the time could go see them in concerts. I was never – even if I lived in the Seattle area, there was no way I was going to get into half of the clubs that Nirvana and Pearl Jam played back in their – you know, back in the day. Yeah. Um, Green Day came around and it felt like – it did feel like teenage punk, and I think that's why I latched onto it. But um, you know, when you have that demographic shift where they become, where it's not the 
the early 20 somethings or the college kids that become the trendsetters. It's the, you know, it's not the cool older kids that are setting the trends. It's the younger kids. It's the tweens. Mm-hmm. You know, the word tween did not exist until the turn of the century, essentially. No, it didn't. And <clears throat> when they're that first generation tw- tweens and they come out and they're like, wait, what the fuck happened? And everybody around them is basically, oh, I'm sorry, this is life. You feel betrayed. Yeah. Now, there is an aspect of it that, you know, yeah, you can't exactly expect everything to be handed to you. But at the same time, they were fed. A, they were sold a bill of goods way more than a lot of other generations were. But yeah. then there's there's the line from Princess Bride. Life is pain, highness. Anyone who tells you otherwise is selling something. Mm. <laughs> Mike. Uh you know, geez, we could we could probably. I know, but I knew, and I know we got to wrap up because I, I have to I have to um, head out in a few yeah. anyway. So uh, yeah, and but I, I've got a lot more on that. So we'll we'll, this, we'll circle back to it sometime. I, I say, I say, I'm going to propose this, and you can keep this in or not. Mm-hmm. I propose that we put a pin in this, and sometime it doesn't have to be immediately after this. It could be a while down the road. We could make we could do a shoot the shit about this. We can and we should, I don't know, I think and we, we will. Should. I'm going to propose that. It doesn't have to be now, obviously, but um, but just kind of put a pin in that so that we can... Yeah, uh, yeah it's better that, it, better that it not be now. So before you and I uh, go our separate ways, though, um, why don't you tell everybody where it is they can find you? You know, your blog, your podcast, everything. Uh, first of all, thanks for having me on. This album is a great album, and if you have never listened to it, um, go out and get it, um, either on CD, download it um, from iTunes. I don't think it's terribly expensive, uh, it's easy to find. Um, uh, you can find me at Pop Culture Affidavit, uh, which is popcultureaffidavit.com. That's a blog with a podcast. I have two podcasts. They're both on the Two True Freaks Network. Uh, one of them is Pop Culture Affidavit. Every <laughs> every episode, I takes a look at something uh, random uh, in, in popular culture. So everything is every episode is a different topic: a movie, music, comics, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and, and the blog posts are the same way. Um, and then the other uh, the other show that I have is called In Country. I'm taking an issue issue by look issue by issue look at the Marvel Comics series The Nam, um, which is about the Vietnam War. Uh, and like I said, uh, popcultureaffidavit.com and twotruefreaks.com. Awesome. Well, thank you uh, for for joining in because, like I say, I mean the size of this uh, of these music episodes it really is too big for me to handle all by myself in what i think is an interesting way so thank you very much i really appreciate you uh, taking the time to join in and that i think is uh, basically it for rem's out of time album it's also it for me this week so automatic for the people sorry <laughs> if you want to start that over just do another take no that sorry. no that's fine i'm, I'm leaving <laughs> We're it in. out of time yeah because we are out of time but uh, no the album we talked about obviously is automatic for the people so i think that's pretty much it for me so bye everybody i will see you next week So, Tom, did you hear about this one? We're out.
The Vietnam War, a conflict that changed America. Of those who served, many came back irrevocably changed, while many did not come back at all. This is their story. Marvel Comics presents The Nom. Join me, Tom Panneries, for In Country, a podcast that covers Marvel Comics series The Nom. Each episode, I will recap and review one issue of the series, as well as provide historical context that's important to understanding the events behind the story. Along the way, I will also take a look at the movies, music, and literature surrounding the Vietnam War. New episodes are posted every two weeks at incountry.podomatic.com. You can find show notes and other media at popcultureaffidavit.com. You know, a dear friend once said to me, it's a lot of fun when everyone's a dork of some sort or another. And I thought not only are those words to live by, it's an idea worth celebrating. So that's why I created Pop Culture Affidavit, a podcast that is about, well, let's just say it's completely random. (laughs) One episode might be about movies, the next might be about comics, the next might be about music. All that matters is that I'm giving you a recap and critique of stuff I enjoy and you're having as much fun as I am, or at least I hope. So join me, Tom Panneries, for Pop Culture Affidavit, the sworn testimony of a dork. You can find a new episode at least once a month at popcultureaffidavit.podomatic.com and notes, essays, and other stuff once a week at popcultureaffidavit.com. everybody, Magnus here. I do a show called Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, wherein I talk about comics, movies, and TV shows. But let's cut the crap, alright? Mostly I spend most of my time talking about comics because, honestly, comics are my first love. So, beginning in March 2017, I'm going to change things up a little bit. I'm going to be joined by Rebecca Johnson to talk about Harry Potter movies. Three. Three Harry Potter movies. Rebecca Johnson will be joining in to discuss The Sorcerer's Stone, The Chamber of Secrets, and The Prisoner of Azkaban. But that's not all that's going on. Also joining in is Professor Allen to talk about the three Chris Nolan Batman movies. Yes, indeedy, we're hashing through Batman Begins... The Dark Knight, and The Dark Knight Rises. Six episodes, six movies, two guest hosts, one regular host, which is to say me, Magnus, and the fun starts on March 7th, 2017. Only at twotruefreaks.com or iTunes or whichever obscure Japanese webpage that syndicates my show without my authorization for some reason. 
I don't really have a problem with that, you understand? It's just it's kind of weird. That's all I'm saying. But whatever. Six movies. Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Batman Begins. Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. The Dark Knight. Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. And The Dark Knight Rises. You got that this mega series is starting in March, right? Just making sure. So I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at TwoTrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. 
Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trenis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demanzacor of Milan, Italy. Thank you.